The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. up everybody welcome back to another episode of the bootleg football podcast i'm your host brett coleman here with my wonderful co-host ej snyder and it is time for the division by division breakdowns at long last uh the nfl draft was about a month ago now and uh that means it's time to go through every single major offseason change from every single team now through the end of summer Division by division, team by team, coaching staff by coaching staff, free agent by free agent, draft pick by draft pick, and even undrafted free agent by undrafted free agent. So we have a lot to talk about over the next couple months. I'm psyched for it. EJ, buddy, how you doing and what are you drinking? I'm good. Uh, this is, as you described it, the mother of all offseason content. It sets us up really well to look at the league, to realize how the divisions are balanced, uh, just to see how the roster makeups go. Uh, I know last year when we went through this, both you and I would comment every week, did you remember that blank was on blank roster or blank moved from X team to X team and how that, those were things we looked for throughout the year as we watch tape week in, week out. Hey, is, is that guy getting playing time? Is he, is he contributing? Um, and a lot of guys that aren't quote unquote making headlines, we're going to talk about some of them today, uh, that are sort of unheralded players that we have liked on rosters and now they've moved on. We like their situation. Um, so I think it's a fascinating exercise. It is a lot of content. It's a ton of fun. Um, and what am I drinking? I have uh, Belching Beaver Breweries and I just love the name. It's uh me so honey blonde because it is pale ale uh brewed with honey oh, um, but i love belching beaver they're they're super fun um and uh, it's a good beer to drink cold <laughs> a little sweeter than your average offering uh so it's a great summer beer just keep it in the ice chest pull them out and uh yeah they go down possibly a little bit too easily what are you drinking i saw you had an interesting shaped bottle there Oh yeah, this is uh this is my favorite rye Sagamore. There we go. Yeah, out yeah. of uh, Maryland, it's a local Maryland distillery, and uh, this is actually a barrel pick from a local liquor store of mine. So they get to kind of select their own barrel. Usually, it's it, like barrel picks are like a blend of certain stuff, and uh, they only they they don't have a whole lot to do like a whole 
uh, offering. So they'll let either store owners or third parties come in and do barrel picks. And uh, this was their pick. And I've heard it's very, very good. So I'm going to be enjoying this tonight. But Sagamore is probably my favorite rye. It is, uh, A, it makes a mean mule. If you ever had a rye mule, throw a little cumin in there. It'll change your life. But also, it's just a damn good sipping rye, which, trust me, not all ryes are good good sippers no say that and we should tell everybody that uh in order to appease folks we're going in reverse order this year so last year we made the nfc and afc west folks wait until the end so this year we're starting west and moving east this is phenomenal by the way uh when you come down for the bears game week one you're trying this if i haven't drank at all gorgeous the color it's, just just oh, the color looks really nice it's unreal i'll just say Fair enough so thank you sagamore for making the nectar of the gods uh why don't we get into our first team here which is going to be the seattle seahawks which i think was our last team last year if i remember correctly so we're correct directly going in reverse order here uh th- there's been a lot of change with the seahawks this offseason i would say much of it brought out by the woes and complaints of their star quarterback but unlike a certain team up in wisconsin it seems like seattle listened to what their quarterback wanted and obliged him so i'll go through uh first things first their coaching staff and then we'll go through their draft picks john schneider is going into year 12 if you can believe it or not with pete carroll uh both of them together as a gm and head coach combo one of the most successful gm head coach combos that we've seen really in this entire era of football Shane Waldron is coming in for uh, year one of that offense coordinator job after uh, Brian Schottenheimer was fired last year, which upset Russell Wilson a little bit, but they gave him input on who got brought in as his replacement, which made him a little bit happy. Uh, Ken Norton's going into year four of the D.C. job there. Started out rocky as hell last year, but they righted the ship in a big way by the end of the season, so hopefully they can carry that momentum through. Uh, Before we get into the actual players they brought in, do you have any quick reactions for the hiring of Shane Waldron, uh, the momentum that you saw with Ken Norton towards the end of last season? What's your general feeling on the Seahawks brass as it stands today? It'll be fascinating because the whole thing with Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll was the power struggle between the two. Pete Carroll loves to run the ball. Russ wants to cook, right? Good old let Russ cook. And he cooked pretty well for the first part of last season. In fact, very well. He was on MVP pace. And then there was some discomfort there. Pete put his foot down by all accounts. They started to run the ball more. The offense got off track a little bit. Schottenheimer chafed at that. One of the reasons he ended up gone. And Russell in the offseason basically said, meh. I don't like that, (laughs) right? I want to do more of what I did in the beginning of the year and less what we did towards the end of the year. I feel like it was less effective. And it really was, you know, that sort of classic choice. Do you choose your head coach who is 70 years old or do you choose your star quarterback who probably has, I'd say, you know, four good years left? um, If if not more, if not more. Yeah, I would say roughly, you know, four is probably the middle number without injury. Uh, you know, and the organization said, well, we're going to try to do both, <laughs> right? We're going to keep Pete, but what that really means is we're keeping Pete and we're keeping Russell because we're not keeping Pete and starting a rebuild with him at 70. Like nobody in the organization 
really felt good about doing that. And, you know, that's right. That was through all the hue and cry about Russell might be a bear. It was like, really, what can the bears offer the Seahawks that's anywhere near equal or will help them get back to where they are with Russell Wilson? The answer was nothing, right? They didn't have a high enough draft pick. They didn't have a quarterback on the roster, young quarterback on the roster who they could trade. So really it would just be minus rust from Seattle. And that never made any sense. So they mended fences. Pete stays, Russell stays. They bring in Shane Waldron. And that's the most interesting sort of addition, I think, is how much is he going to get to play, quote unquote, his own game? Or how much is he just going to have to follow Pete's lead? Uh, and again, that's going to be a balancing act. They're going to have to figure that out. Um, might not be a super smooth transition. Uh, a lot of times offenses take a little bit longer to gel than defenses when you change you know, philosophy, terminology, uh, the person calling them. So that's the thing to keep an eye on is really what Seattle's offense looks like under the combination. And I'm just going to say of Carol Waldron and Wilson, because Wilson's been around long enough. He's like a coach on the field. So how are those three players in Seattle going to interact? And what's the end result on offense going to be Norton? A lot of changes in the law. (laughs) Um, He's done better. Uh, I'm not a huge Ken Norton Jr. fan as a coordinator. Uh, I think as a position coach, he can be good, Uh, is very good, I should say. Um, They righted the ship a little bit. They definitely played better towards the end of the year. Did they play great? Um, I don't feel like they did. So I feel like he has to sort of maintain and improve, and I'm not sure. We talk about ceilings with players all the time. I'm not sure that we haven't seen Ken Norton Jr.'s ceiling as a coordinator. Right. I think we probably have, yeah. actually. And I'm not sure that, you know, I think he can play up to that. And if he does, I think the Seahawks would be fine. Um, but I don't I don't think the Seahawks defense is going to ascend uh, barring some kind of changes. But that's that's my sort of general preseason early preseason take on the Hawks sort of brass and coaching changes. My big thing with Norton was. It took them way too long to figure out that they couldn't run that much fire zone because they they clearly were not satisfied. And this was something we talked about in last year's um, division by division preview it was like their defensive line was not talented uh, before they before the Dunlap trade. Like they had maybe one or two guys that you could really count on in the rotation to get pressure before Dunlap came in. And so I feel like he was, uh, Norton was overcompensating by just blitzing like crazy. And it's like, we are going to call fire zone. We are going to throw five and six guys at the quarterback as much as humanly possible, which is fine. Like there's plenty of teams that make that work. Like the Buccaneers uh, completely eviscerated the Packers with fire zone in like week six or seven. And that's Aaron Rodgers that they're doing that to and Devontae Adams that they're doing that to. So it's like, it's not a bad game plan, but when you have a hobbled Quentin Dunbar and literally none of your corners can cover and they're bailing into a deep third seven to eight yards over the top of these Bills receivers because they know that they can't run with them. And so they're snapping off easy curl routes, which is the easiest way to beat fire zone on at all is is you're just leaving these giant gaping holes and the corners aren't sticking to guys like 
Again, I understand the game plan, but they didn't have the secondary to do it because the secondary was either hurt or just straight up bad. Whereas you look at Tampa and it's like they have actual dudes in that secondary. So I feel like it, it took them way too long to adjust away from that game plan and do more drop seven in the occasional drop eight kind of stuff and, and almost getting back to like the heart of that patented Pete Carroll cover three and quarters and stuff like that. Like it, it took them way too long to get to that. And ironically, when they did get to that, they played a lot better as a team. So I'm curious to see now in 2021, do they try to to blitz more because Jaron Reed's gone? Uh, do they stick with more of like the the straight up like conservative zone coverage rally and tackle mentality they played towards the end of the year? I don't know what they're going to do because Ken Norton's kind of done both before. So that's kind of like one of the main storylines I'm looking at. We might not even know what that defense is going to be till October, but it's something that Seahawks fans need to pay attention to is we're kind of at a a fork in the road here, philosophically speaking, for defense. I feel like they only have the personnel to go one way, but they they have a coordinator that wants to go the other way. So we'll see. Uh, And then on offense, I actually really like the Waldron hire. He's... um, he was a Shanahan guy in Washington, uh, and then he followed McVeigh to L.A. And he was under McVeigh for literally since McVeigh got to uh, L.A. He was a tight ends coach, passing game coordinator, everything like that. So I assume that they're going to be running that Shanahan, McVeigh, Kubiak-ish, you know, wide zone, West Coast passing attack, timing, timing, timing. I'm assuming that's what they're going to do. Wouldn't surprise me if there's some of like the empty stuff that Russell Wilson really likes in there. But again, knowing Pete Carroll, he's going to be like, yeah, stick with the run part of that because the rest of the division with all these coordinators from that coaching tree run the hell out of the ball and they do pretty well. So do that part. So again, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of these coordinators. I I do think that there's uh, the, the bones of the house are good. I just don't know where the mold is yet, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Again, it might be October when we figure out what the Seahawks team is. I think they could either be really, really good or really, really bad. Actually, no. They have Russell Wilson. They won't be really, really bad. They could either be really, really good or really, really average. How about that? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's totally fair, and it, it was kind of a yard sale on defense for, the, for, for too long, and the first part of the season, it looked abysmal. It was really bad before Dunlap and before Norton's adjustments. They looked completely outclassed. They looked like a bad college team on defense because they just couldn't cover. And it's kind of like the coordinators over there pounding his clipboard saying, come on, guys, cover. And that's not going to fix it. Right. Then they get Dunlap. It's, uh, that's another sort of interesting sign. When you sign a an aging pass rusher, a veteran pass rusher. And I like Dunlap. I think he's good. And he is instantly your biggest pass rush threat. You didn't have a lot to start with. Right. Yeah. And Alton Robinson came on, developed nicely. A guy we saw at the senior bowl. Uh, you know, I think he's a guy that's got a future more so than some of the other defensive linemen they've drafted recently. Um, but it is going to be fascinating to see how that balances. And the same thing on offense. Like, how, how much of that, I agree that, you know, that's the system Waldron came from, but how's that going to run up against when, when Pete gets nervous, what he wants to do, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the free agency section, is like, give the ball to Chris Carson, yeah. right? Let him pound. 
you know, typically between the tackles or, or just right off tackle, right? That's Chris Carson's not a great outside zone runner. He's not, that's his, not his specialty. He's a hammer. He's a very good one. Uh, and that's what he fits. And they've re-signed him in the off season, which is like, yeah, Shane Waldron and another guy, Gerald Everett, like tight end. Yeah. Wide open, empty, extra receiving threats. Yeah. We got a bunch of those we're going to talk about. And then they re-signed Carson and it's like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So how are you going to fit those things together? And you can do that. You can blend offenses. This is, I think one of the misnomers that fans have is like they run outside zone. No, most run games have some outside zone elements, maybe some inside zone elements, some gaps, some duo, like they have plays, but they, they do tend to have a tendency. Uh, but it'll be really interesting to see again, where's the balance? Who's winning that sort of theoretical battle on offense between like Pete and Shane wanting to do some things that are maybe a little bit, uh, more wide open, um, like you said, more empty stuff like that. So it's going to be a really interesting, and we probably won't know until October. First couple of weeks of the season are always a false positive session of the NFL, <laughs> yeah. right? Everybody overreacts to week one. By week two, there's still some weird results. And then people start to to normalize a little bit. So uh, definitely something to watch uh, coming out of the Northwest. You know, for this draft class, they actually only had three picks, which you and I both expected them to be active on the trade market because they only had three picks, but they, they did the opposite and they did a whole stick and pick strategy. They came out with Dwayne Askridge, who was a favorite of both of ours at a Western Michigan, Trey Brown from OU, and then in the sixth, they got Stone Forsyth, uh, who, from what I heard, had, had some medical flag which contributed to the drop. I don't necessarily think it went like first round to sixth round. It might have been like day two to sixth round. I personally thought there was a good chance he was going to go in the first. Clearly he did not. Uh, but I guess uh, medical was a big reason why he went in the sixth in the first place. But when I look at these three picks, they actually um, they signal a little bit maybe of what of what Waldron and particularly Russ want to do, both in the run game and the pass game. Because uh, I think Eskridge, and we've talked about this several times on the show since the draft, is going to be a natural in the slot for them. But also, when you look at the stuff that McVay and Shanahan do with jet motion, like that is a constant and consistent part of their run game, whether it's as a decoy or whether, you know, McVay's giving the ball to Robert Woods down in the red zone on jet because they feel like they can get an edge and Woods got a couple rushing touchdowns just off that play. You see Shanahan do it with Debo and Ayuk. Like that, is, that I think is going to be a consistent part of the Seahawks run game, which maybe it wasn't as much before. And I think Eskridge is going to be a natural for that. And then Forsyth, uh, will he start? immediately uh, it's probably not but again the the tools are there and with Dwayne Brown getting up there in age he's mid-30s now I think you could do a hell of a lot worse than at developmental potential future left tackle than Stone Forsyth in the sixth round uh as you mentioned before on the show he got the seal of approval already from Steve Hutchinson which I think means a lot to both of us so overall I was very satisfied with what they did in the draft and it kind of gave us a little window into what they want to do on offense yeah I fully agree that if you've got three players they came away with three good players three good values at where they picked um three players that are going to help them Eskridge in particular Waldron coming in you mentioned jet motion and 
both the systems or, or both the coaching trees that he comes from use it a lot. We're going to see it. He did it at Western Michigan. They needed a dynamic third receiver. They had a good third receiver. Like, I am a Moore fan. Moore is gone, but he's not a jet motion guy. He is not a dynamic make-you-miss guy. He is a very good on-time, physical mm, possession and a little bit more down-the-field down receiver, but he is not somebody you're going to run jet motion to more than three or four times a year. Uh, Eskridge is a guy that you could fake to four or five times a game, run him twice on it, and use the mismatches created by that motion uh, to leverage open other parts of your offense. So they needed a dynamic third guy. And honestly, they need a dynamic fourth guy too. If you look at what the Rams did, right? The Rams ran four wide receivers a lot and the Hawks didn't really go four wide receivers deep. They were two mm-hmm. really good receivers and a very solid receiver deep. And after that, the depth chart wasn't there. Waldron's like, you got to give me some tools, right? And they go get Eskridge. Then we'll talk about it in UDFA. They take a bunch of other swings for who can we put when we go empty as that fourth wide receiver that's going to threaten some people. Uh, and they got a couple of those. So that, I think, is absolutely a card tip to what they want to do on offense. Forsyth is in a perfect spot. Sixth round, he doesn't have to start. He's got amazing tools. He can sit behind Dwayne Brown, future you know guy that will be considered for the Hall of Fame. I'm not going to say Hall of Famer or Locke or anything else. Very good long-term left tackle in the NFL and say, what does this guy do? And then have a coach at Steve Hutchinson or a consultant who says, you know, do this. And the gap in Forsyth's game was always run blocking. Well, guess what? Hutchinson's really good run blocker. You can probably give him some tips there. And he can develop, right? He can get on that strength and conditioning program. He can listen to Steve and Dwayne in meetings and say, and be and out on the field and say, this is what I need to do and grow into that role. And there's just not that many guys that are that big and move that well already in pass pro. So if he can develop that run blocking part of his game, which he's in a perfect spot to do, we talk about landing spot all the time, right? You're sitting behind a possible future hall of fame left tackle. You've got a hall of fame guard telling you what to do. And you've got all the tools in the world. Like, the world's your oyster. Go make it happen. So great pick for Seattle there. Um, was really surprised, but uh, saved me some money because I was going to bet big money that they'd move down in the second for extra picks because, come on, John Schneider always does that. And again, they stuck a pick <laughs> and I was just too busy to get that bet in. So it saved myself some cash, which was nice. But uh, they made up for it on the back end. They only had three picks in the draft, but boy, did they load up on UDFAs. I, I don't know if we've heard anything more about it, but I know they've been floating Trey Brown at outside corner, which is not a role that I expected for a guy that's like 5'10 and sub 190. Yeah. But they, they reaffirmed they all, it at camp. So, all right, it, at I, rookie mini camp. It must, it must be working. And what honestly, that almost gives us a little bit of insight of, of the kind of defense they want to run because Agreed. if they wanted to go back to like, we are press bail cover three like trey brown would not be an outside corner for them if they want to stick with the we are blitzing like crazy we are playing off coverage it's fire zone all day every day trey brown is a little bit more attractive outside in that kind of role thinking through it now in real time that pick and their insistence 
Because, again, we looked at some of the reps he did at the Senior Bowl where he is off in bail and then somebody's snapping off a curl and he's recovering fast enough to go break it up. That that kind that rep right there is valuable in that kind of defense because they didn't have corners that could do that last year, especially because Dunbar had was running on like one leg for most of the season. If they are dead set on him being outside as an off corner for them, that almost signals that they want to go back to what they did early in the season and, and give that another shot with a retooled secondary and just pressure, 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 and hope that their guys can hold up on the back end. Will it work? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I'll I, say I they're know. dead set on giving him the chance, right? Yeah. And, and they said it in the press conference after the draft, which, uh, look, those can be uh, a lot of emotion is still occurring. They, they give those like right after they make the picks. And they said, no, we're going to look at him at outside corner. We're going to look at him. What does that mean? No, they had rookie minicamp, and uh, Pete said specifically, "No, we're gonna we're gonna try him at outside corner first. Like, period. That's what we're doing." Um, now he did say try, and if it doesn't work, yeah, they'll absolutely you know roll him into the slot. But the fact that they're even trying is against their sort of very classic physical profile. Some teams have physical profiles of players they like. Seahawks had a physical type at corner, like a lockdown physical type. He does not fit that. I did a preview with field goals and we didn't talk about him because he was far enough outside the envelope. I was like, nah, they're not going to, because we were talking about outside corners. They pick him and say they're going to try him at outside corners. Signals a bit of a change in their philosophy, right? That they're not just going to say, no, we need the Richard Sherman clones. We need guys that have long arms who are press and are going to get up in your face, right? That's been the Seahawks corner for, again, you said Schneider's been there over a decade and for the last decade, that has been the Seahawks type at corner outside. Looks like eh, might be a crack in that you know, crack in that armor, right? It might change a little bit, so we'll see. Now UDFA's, uh, you know, we we've talked about their UDFA class before, so we won't get too deep into it. But I'll just kind of read them off here: Greg Island from Mississippi State, uh, Brian Mills from North Carolina Central, John Radigan from Army. Cade Johnson, who we both love from South Dakota State, to Marion Terry, who in most draft classes probably would have got drafted but there were some questions off the field and i guess also medical too that caused uh, him to knee. go knee so maybe if there was a combine maybe if there was interviews maybe he would have got drafted by somebody but because of the offseason how it was structured he was he, he kind of got screwed a little bit so he went undrafted uh i'd be stunned if he didn't make the team connor weddington from stanford because how many receivers do you need yes uh, B.J. Emmons from FAU, Josh Johnson from ULM, and then uh, Pierre Olivier Lestage, I believe, from University nice. of you Montreal. Nice, you nailed it. Hey, and I used to be fluent in French growing no. up, by the way. Perfect. Now, uh, so if I was going to do like full on, full on French pronunciation, Pierre Olivier Lestage. Very nice. Now, yeah. the local beat writers were struggling, and uh, Pete bailed him out after minicamp. He's like, he goes by Pierre. Just call him Pierre. Everybody was like, great. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, but I, honestly, look, Seahawks breed and and preach and live competition every day. That's Pete Carroll's model, right? And it is a meritocracy. At one point, over 60% uh, of the Seahawks roster at one point was undrat like, fifth round or undrafted fifth round or later undrafted free agents like they will play you if you can play and they do have a 
bit of a different mindset on player evaluation. Let's just say that uh, sliding scale compared to the rest of the league or just a different scale than the rest of the league. So the idea that any of these folks could end up on the on the final roster, absolutely plausible, more so than almost any other team in the league. But really, they went with special teams. I mean, Eskridge is a special teamer as well, the guy they drafted. But Cade Johnson, Tamori and Terry, and Connor Weddington, three special teams versed wide receivers who have a ton of special teams reps and speed, right? Speed in all three of those guys. So again, if you're looking, at, if you're Shane Waldron and you're like, I just need a guy for wide receiver four, and I only need him to run three routes. Yeah. Right? He's got to run three routes. He's got to run one option route where he stops if the safety rolls over his side. And other than that, if they don't, just two versions of a go, right? And that's all I need him to run because the other three guys I can I can move, I can use motion, I can use jets, and I can have them run the routes. But literally, I need that fourth guy to be a can opener or run a stop route. Like, And you can teach a rookie wide receiver who is also taking special teams reps three routes right all those guys can run at least three routes and if one of them hits and becomes that guy i mean we know that tamori and terry from his reps at florida state can be a can opener right he did it on the boundary but he could do it from this lot like he runs nine balls all day and you know he's a basket catch guy but he's a step and a half ahead of people he can basket catch it if he wants to so if any of those guys hit a they get a special teamer which is a slot you have to fill from fifth or sixth wide receiver on your team anyways and Waldron gets that fourth wild card in his in his open sets. And then Island is a guy. Mills actually fits their profile. Mills I talked about in that preview episode, the guy from uh, North Carolina Central. Uh, he's raw, but he has the physical profile. And I was like, that sounds like a Seahawks corner. They end up getting him in UDFA. <laughs> and then Greg Island is a powerhouse on the inside, the guard from Mississippi State. And he is more that sort of gap, like, man inside crusher right he is chris yeah, well, he's six eight he's yeah. six eight three forty i mean good yeah, lord <laughs> he, he is a mountain for sure yeah, and the guy that turned me gigantic. on to island is uh our buddy craig stout who works for casey sports network now and he was early early in the process i was like who's somebody that's not on anybody's list that you love and he's like greg island and i was like really looked him up and i was like dude that, that guy's just a load and a half and he yeah. would not to me signal a shift towards outside zone but again it's udfa it's a guy you sign as hopefully a developmental guard uh probably somebody you might end up putting on the practice squad if not you know he's a swing guard but not super mobile but power by the just the truckload so interesting guy um but a ton of talent they really they did exceptionally well we highlighted them in our udfa episode um they added a lot that they needed for free they only had three picks but all these guys have the potential to be special teamers to make the roster to make the 53 to be on the practice squad i I wouldn't be surprised if 70 percent of those guys ended up sticking on either the practice squad or the active roster i mean the seahawks traditionally have been a team that really give an honest chance to undrafted free agents agents like player agents love sending their guys to seattle because they know that pete will give them an actual chance to make the team true story he plays no favorites that's why it was so surprising that they caved into rust because he pete does not play favorites even go back to his time in college they had competition wednesdays where if you did well on it's either competition tuesday or competition wednesday i can't remember what it was but if you did well at practice that day you were starting that week didn't matter if there was an all-american ahead of you you were going to start 
And all of his guys believe that, which is why USC practices were legendarily physical. Like physical, physical, physical. Because guys knew that if they gave maximum effort, they would have a chance to play, no matter who was ahead of them. And he runs his teams in Seattle the same way. I just, I can't help but see Deadpool when you say maximum effort. (laughs) (laughs) Maximum effort. I can just imagine Deadpool at USC practice, and and that's just a hybrid I would love to catch. But no, he (laughs) he is as uh, egalitarian as meritocracy based, right? You perform, you play. And it doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't care about your pedigree. Uh, we had Matt Bowen on, and he was like, guess what? All that stuff doesn't matter anymore, right? When we were talking about testing and measurables. He's like, you're in the NFL, man. Like, if you can play, you can play. And that's more true in Seattle than it is anywhere else in the league. It is true other places, but it seems to be somewhat selective. Pete, across the board, like you said, if you show up, if you are role and assignment sound, right you will play it's it's richard sherman it's cam chancellor it's brandon brown it's all these guys so that, many guys you know so that overlook chris carson, carson. doug baldwin michael bennett was undervalued like he doesn't care if you're a good player you'll be on the field so i agree with you a lot of those guys will make the roster and probably get significant playing time uh, and that brings us to free agency where they were very, very active, both with guys that were already on the roster and guys that they brought in from elsewhere. So major additions. Uh, they poached quite a bit uh, from their division. So they got Akella Witherspoon, Gerald Everett, uh, who clearly Waldron was pushing for that because he wanted a super athletic move, tight end, H-back, whatever you want to call Everett, big slot. And he also wants somebody to install his offense, right? This that, is that, a, that too. This is <laughs> a too. classic move in the NFL, right? New coach, whether it's head coach or whether it's coordinator, give me somebody from my system so that when everybody else goes, what the hell does he mean? Gerald can go, go this way. <laughs> yes. He means go this way. <laughs> right. uh, they also got Kerry Hyder Jr., Al Woods, uh, Alden Smith, baby, whatever happens with Alden Smith, I, who knows. Uh, and then Pierre Desir, who is just going to be in the league forever, I guess. It, I, coaches really love Pierre Desir. Like, it seems like he's on a new team every year or two, but he that dude just consistently gets work, so more power to him. Uh, in terms of free agents retained, uh, they kept Puna Ford. He's a restricted, uh, was a restricted free agent. Nick Ballor's still back. Uh, Ethan Pochick is back. Benson Mayowa. Uh, Cedric Abway, they resigned. Chris Carson. Uh, Carlos Dunlap, they retained as well. Demarius Randall and Geno Smith at backup quarterback. And then in terms of free agent losses, they lost Shaq Griffin to Jacksonville and Carlos Hyde to Jacksonville and Philip Dorsett to Jacksonville. So they had a trio of guys go to the Jags who had infinite money to spend. David Moore is now in Carolina. Jacob Hollister is a Buffalo Bill. Jonathan Ballard is in Atlanta now. And Quentin Dunbar, who was the corner I mentioned earlier that was playing on one leg, is now with the Lions. So I'm assuming Trey Brown is going to be in contention to replace him outside in a very similar role. So overall, looking at all those losses, all those retentions, and all those gains, what's your overall take on the kind of balance that Seattle has uh, in the free agency process? Did they win more? Did they lose more? Are they about the same? What's your feeling? I think they're probably better. 
I really like the addition of Gerald Everett. The, with Waldron coming over, that's even more significant. But it's something that the Seahawks have never really had. Uh, they sort of had it in Jimmy Graham, but Jimmy Graham was aging and didn't do a ton in Seattle. But Everett is a different kind of player. The, again, the Seahawks have a bit of a type at tight end, the Will Disleys and um, the bigger guys that have hands and great red zone targets, super reliable fan favorites, uh, but not necessarily guys that you can send down the seam. And Gerald Everett's had a lot of success there. Obviously, Shane knows how to use him there. So it's really interesting to see how he'll figure into that offense. Um, Chris Carson, we talked about a little bit. Alden Smith, wild card. We'll see what happens. Uh, Posting is an interesting guy to keep because they must have liked what they've seen. Trying to, again, keep Russ happy, keep a line in front of him, uh, a piece they chose to keep. Um, and then Dunlap, I think, was almost a must resign, which is just a weird thing to say for a guy that's been around for as long as he has, but he fits so well and brought such a spark and was clearly their best pass rusher. As soon as he arrived, started producing in the system. It's kind of a must keep because again, they didn't draft anybody or uh, bring anybody else in uh, that was really going to challenge for that. And then Kerry Hyder is one of those guys that watching every game last year, I made notes about Kerry Hyder probably every week or every other week. And I was like, man, mm-hmm. this guy can freaking play. Like he makes three, four good plays a week, really good plays, I would say, sort of above replacement level or above average plays. Um, he's, he's again, assignment and sort of gaps sound. He's going to be in the right place, but he also can make plays so kind of an underrated signing there and it again takes it from a division rival adds it to your stock that's a sort of double win and then akella witherspoon is a guy i think is sort of more in that classic seahawks corner mold when he was coming out he was one of the guys that i looked at because he had all the measurements and he played that way and i like his fit a lot again the seahawks aren't stacked at corner he's got a great path to playing time And I think he did pretty well in his last stop in San Francisco. Not great, but pretty well. I think he can ascend. If you're talking about a player that maybe hasn't shown you everything that he has, um, I think he might be able to show a little bit more in Seattle. Again, depending on the the scheme and the system they play. Demarius Randall's a player I like, but I really think he's a backup at this point. Um, uh, They have him listed at, at corner, which is a little odd. He's one of those guys that can play corner, can play safety. I really see him as more like a dime safety, third safety, um, which isn't bad. If Demarius Randall's your third safety, you're doing okay. Uh, but overall, I, I like the Hall. Did they lose some players? Sure. But they were guys that, like Carlos Hyde, Philip Dorsett, everybody gets excited about them because they were names coming out. Um, neither one's produced a bunch in a while. Um, so uh, I like what they did. Uh, am I confident about their backup quarterback situation nah but that's you know many teams in the nfl don't have a backup quarterback that i'm excited about so overall i think it's a good strong haul and when you add it up with a very strong udfa class and again a solid draft class although it was small i think they set themselves up pretty well i like what what john did in the offseason and it'll be really interesting to see how they fit all those pieces together yeah, I mean, you touched on the Kerry Hyder pickup, and he was like the other, other, other guy uh, for for the 49ers. And, you know, when Bosa got hurt, 
he got a lot more snaps and kind of showed what he could do. He had a career high in sacks last year, but also his pressure rate was very, very good. So he was kind of like an unsung hero on that defensive line and, and a big reason why their defense didn't completely and utterly collapse after Bosa went out. Uh, so I think if you look at like a third down rush of Kerry Hyder, Carlos Dunlap, Puna Ford, and Alton Robinson. Or LJ Collier, Al Wood, whoever you want to throw in there. And then, you know, Jamal Adams blitzing so all these guys can get a one-on-one. That's a lot better than it was last year. And again, I still have I still have some concerns about the secondary because you're hoping that, you know, Trey For Brown sure. and Akello and Flowers and all them can can hold up one-on-one. But I kind of, I feel a little bit better about this defense personnel-wise now than I did this same time last year. And not to mention, it's year four. All these guys know what they're doing now. Like, theoretically, communication's going to be better because that was a big issue for them as well. Do I think they're going to be, like, elite in points per game like they were in the last six, seven weeks of the season? That might be a little bit of a stretch. But I certainly don't think they're going to be on pace for being, like, historically awful like they were in the beginning of last season. I think we're going to look somewhere in the middle, average to above-average defense, and then just depending on, you know, if Jamal plays out of his mind and plays like Jamal, if Dunlap has another renaissance year, uh, if Hyder continues to ascend, like maybe we can start to talk about them among the the upper echelon defenses. But at least, like at minimum, I think they're going to be average to above average. And then as long as you're average to above average on defense and you still got Russell cooking with all these receivers and an upgraded offensive line, it is not out of the realm of possibility for me to see Seattle be one of the last teams remaining in the NFC. It's really not. No, not at all. And I'll give you one move. Typically late moves, moves that happen well after the draft, don't really swing a team's fortunes, but this one might. Hmm. They might get KJ back for cheap. That's true. He's still floating out there, isn't he? He is still floating out there. In fact, I got asked about him yesterday, and somebody said, where do you think KJ ends up? And I'm like, honestly, at this point... Super low cap year, uh, you know, lowest in a long time. Everybody's pretty much settled their stuff. Do you really want to go take a one-year flyer somewhere and learn a new system? Or if John and Pete come saying, hey, we'll sign you to a one-year deal, you know, it'd be less than you were going to make, but you play with all your old mates, you already know the system. Like, if they swing, uh, say, July, right before, you know, off-season workouts really crank up, Right, right before camp starts, KJ deal. That's that's a plus for them more so than it would be for almost any other team because again of the run up and off season activities and whatever else. Now, did KJ play great last year? No, but he played solid, and they're going to be able to get him for next to nothing because he's been sitting on the market the whole time and everybody's out of money. And that would be again for Seattle a bigger plus than just about anybody else that could sign him. I would I would say that actually does swing even more, you know, in their favor. What do you want to bet that he wants to go back to Seattle? He just doesn't want to do OTAs, <laughs> so he hasn't signed yet. And look, <laughs> Pete is notorious for taking really good care of vets. I'm sure they're yeah. talking, right? And he's like, "Look, sign me." <laughs> sign me on sign like me july <laughs> 10th right right yeah. like two yeah. days before i'll keep in shape and you sign me late and that's going to be our handshake deal and i'll play for you know whatever you've got left for one year and you know he gets a job 
he's up to speed. He knows the defense. He knows the people he's playing with largely. That would be a that would be a nice boost for the Hawks, and I could totally see it happen. It's actually quite realistic. Why don't we get into uh, the Seahawks' biggest rival, arguably, which is the 49ers, who had another active off, uh, very active offseason, uh, a lot of potentially transformational changes within the organization. Uh, first things first, let's look at the front office and coaching staff at the coordinator levels. So we got John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan already in year five together, if you can believe it. feels like they just got Time hired in to, together. <laughs> yeah, they're already in year five. I think they, they came in in like a six-year deal, if I remember when they first got hired, and they're already you know 80% of the way through it. Uh, Mike McDaniel is going to be uh, year one being the offensive coordinator, but I mean, let's be honest, Kyle and him are going to be working hand-in-hand. It's a little mix of both. Uh, He got promoted to OC after LaFleur left to to go with Robert Sala, who was their other coordinator, the defensive coordinator that left for New York. So D'Amico Ryans is now uh, the defensive coordinator, and D'Amico has a soft spot in my heart as a former Houston Texan, uh, one of the greatest uh, linebackers that Alabama has ever produced, and Alabama's produced a lot of great linebackers. I am not surprised that he's had kind of uh, this quick rise in the coaching ranks. He was always seen as like a coach on the field, whether he was in Houston, whether he was in Philly. This does not shock me at all. As for what kind of defense he's going to run, he's played in and seen every defense you can imagine. So I don't necessarily think that it's a lock-in for, oh, he's going to run Salah's stuff, or, oh, he's going to run Saban's stuff, or, oh, he's going to run Schwartz's stuff, or, you know, Dom Capers. Like, what? I don't know what he's going to run, but I think that there's going to be a lot of different stuff in there because he's been around, he's seen a lot. And I think that he he is going to mold the system to his personnel. He's going to use the fact that he has a unique linebacker like Fred Warner to his advantage and know like, Hey, I got a linebacker that was able to stick with Hollywood Brown step for step. I can do coverages that most other teams can't do because I have that kind of linebacker. Uh, I have a defensive line that has Bosa and these just absolutely ravenous interior pass rushers. Like I can do stuff with my defensive line that other teams can't do. So I, again, I don't know exactly what system they're going to run, but I do know that D'Amico Ryans is smart enough and experienced enough, even though it's his first time as a DC, that he's going to run whatever his team is good at. So maybe we won't find out until like week six what that is, but I think by the second half of the season, we're going to see this 49ers defense rocking and rolling, and I'm really excited to see what D'Amico does. He's one of my all-time favorite Texans, even though he wasn't even there for very long. But that's how much I love Captain Miko, and every other fan of every other team he's ever been involved with loves Captain Miko for a reason, because he's he's that dude. So uh, overall, very excited about this 49ers front office and coaching staff. Uh, the culture is top notch, and really, if I was a 49ers fan, I, this would be one of the one of the seasons that I think I was most excited for in a long time. Yeah, D'Amico, I want to talk about in particular because D'Amico Ryans was one of my favorite players uh, that, you know, never played for Chicago, but didn't matter because he was a tremendous player coming out. He was incredibly smart. He's very skilled. And I'm not surprised either that his rise through the coaching ranks has been rapid. And typically when you lose a guy that's as good as Robert Sala, like all the Jets rave about Sala, that's why he got that job. 
everybody knew that he was going to be a hot coaching candidate and that he probably wasn't going to stick because he's a rising talent. He's a star. Usually when you lose a star, there's a drop off, right? <laughs> You're like, well, not Robert Sala, but he's probably going to be able to carry his own water. With D'Amico Ryans, I'm like, yeah. You don't know his name yet, but I'm equally as excited as you are for him to take the reins there and and really put his own wrinkles on it. I think if he carries forward, just for continuity's sake, 60 or 70% of Sala's system and adds his own wrinkles as he goes, because, again, he came from Alabama. Saban and Belichick are really good friends. I mean, you can't help but look at Bill's defenses every week and go, he adapts, right? He adapts to his personnel, but he also adapts to the opponent right we're not gonna do <laughs> the one thing i would be most surprised by this by the san francisco defense doing this year is if they did kind of the same thing almost all the time yeah i would be flabbergasted i'd be like what uh i really expect that defense to be changeable both to personnel but also week to week um and i think i think a lot of fans think that's the norm right that the game plans like really variable every week and with some teams it is and with some teams it's really not they're gonna play 70 percent of the same stuff no matter what and i can see D'Amico ryan's being very creative not only because he has players like fred warner which allow you to do that but also because he is a very good defensive mind as was solid it was not that way in the past and i would be very surprised if it changed and became more so you know more sort of uniform and less changeable i imagine it will keep that adaptability and i can't wait to see what he can do because i think it's going to be tremendous so i'm that's probably the move i'm most excited about mcdaniel i don't worry as much about because it look it's kyle's offense he's gonna he's gonna take input from his coaches he always has but uh, you could put a lot of people there, and I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Kyle Shanahan <laughs> yeah. is one of the greatest <laughs> offensive minds in the NFL, so I worry less about that. D'Amico, I think, is absolutely going to be able to hold his own, even though it's his official first season as a defensive coordinator. Now, draft-wise, it was uh, one of the more exciting draft classes, I would say, mainly because of who they got at the top. You know, There was that huge trade-up, which ended up being for Trey Lance, not for Mac Jones at third overall. They came back in round two at 16th overall and got Aaron Banks out of Notre Dame, which uh, was a pick that you and I, I think both felt was about right in terms of value. Uh, Trey Sermon, who was a personal favorite of mine, uh, one of the more divisive prospects, I would say, uh, between me and AJ this season. Uh, Ambry Thomas from Michigan, who you absolutely adored. So again, first four was good. Jalen Moore from Western Michigan. Uh, uh, Demandre Lenoir. At least I think it's Lenoir from Oregon and not Lenore. Again, I watch all 22, so I don't necessarily get to hear the announcers say the name. But uh, And then Talanoa Hafunga from USC, who went in the fifth round. A lot of people thought he was going to go earlier than that, and fifth round sounded about right to me. Uh, and then Elijah Mitchell from Louisiana, who was a favorite of yours as well. So uh, very, very, like, top to bottom. I, I didn't have any picks that stuck out there that was like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, everybody seemed to be appropriate value for me um where else to start other than trey lance i had him going third overall in my mock drafts for a reason when you look at athletic ability uh, mental makeup 
I mean, he's got everything. He has every tool you could want. It's a very Josh Allen-ish comp where it's like, we love the person, we love uh, the attitude, we love the work ethic, we love the physical tools. Ball placement needs work, but everything else is there. And then Josh Allen, once he fixed his ball placement in the NFL, then everything else that he brought to the table was allowed to shine and he became an MVP candidate. I think Trey Lance is going to be a similar story in San Francisco. Like I had him as a top three pick because where else could he go to get that kind of coaching that he needs to unlock that potential and let his whole toolbox shine. So uh, the fact that he doesn't even have to play early because they still got Jimmy G is even better for him. But truth be told, whether Jimmy G is there or not, whether he's healthy or not, I wouldn't be surprised if Lance plays sooner rather than later because once he gets to camp and these receivers see the ball come out of his hand and they see the difference and they see the effect he has on the run game with his mobility, all the guys in the locker room are going to be like, look, I love Jimmy, but come on. That dude, we need to get that dude on the field. It won't just be the guys in the locker room either. I mean, the coaching staff picked him because Jimmy is a known known, right? He is a known yeah. quantity. What Jimmy can give you is good. You know, got him deep into the playoffs, looking at the Super Bowl. And Trey Lance is better in his ceiling. And he is a better runner by far. And Kyle has been uh, <laughs> covetous of uh, somebody that can move better than Jimmy can. And what that could do for his ability to call a greater variety of plays um when trey lance takes off he reminds me of steve mcnair as a runner he is a powerful runner he is fast uh he's got good vision and he will run you over which is rare for a quarterback but he could do it um he's got a great arm when you say ball placement i'll take a little bit of issue and say deep ball placement needs work but in this sort of west coast crossing game his ball placement's really yeah. good. And no, you're right. Who does yeah. more <laughs> West Coast <laughs> crossing game than Shanahan, right? So that lines mm-hmm. up perfectly. He can do something right now really well at a high level that they do very often. That's a great place to start with a quarterback. And, oh, yeah, if it breaks down or you get confused by the rotating coverage or whatever else, run around for two seconds, see if anybody else pops open. If not, take the hell off because you're a really talented runner. Right, a very highly physically talented runner. And the Josh Allen comp I can see from physical traits, but if Josh Allen had the freshman season at Wyoming that Trey had at North Dakota State, Josh Allen would have been number one with a bullet. Yeah. Right. He would have been the unquestioned number one overall pick. Like that freshman season at North Dakota State unbelievable about halfway through people were pinging me going you gotta look i'm like he's a freshman the hell am i gonna look at him for people like (laughs) no no he's thrown you know at that point 16 17 touchdowns no picks as a true freshman and i was like really okay i'll look you know and i looked and i saw a lot of the things the same you know that the san francisco brass did uh, I agree with you top to bottom in this class. Very few picks that I had any issue with at all, uh, either for talent, uh, scheme match, or value. The only one that I'm even sort of eh, a little bit about was Banks. And it's not because I don't like Aaron Banks, the player. I think it was a little rich. I think he would have lasted a little bit longer. He's a good guard. Could they have got him in the third? 
maybe if they love him great again it's a it's a this is splitting hairs right it's not that big a deal trey sermon i didn't like him as much as you did but that doesn't mean i didn't like him he's a good player and he's going to be great in that system uh ambry thomas all over ambry thomas tremendous pick for them a Jalen moore i think could be a starter in two years i think he has that kind of ability uh Lenore from Oregon was uh, the guy out of their secondary that I liked less um, than, you know, some other guys that got picked a little bit higher. But again, you're talking about the fifth round, near the end of the fifth round, 28th in the fifth round. Fine. Great pick. He's a talented guy. I think they can work with him. Hafanga, I was really surprised by that he that he lasted that long. But again, this is a player that I bet Lynch especially was ecstatic to get. And they know how to use him. This is Jakiski Tart all over again, right? This is a, a guy that is physical. He's going to come forward. He's going to play with power. He's going to get you tackles for losses. He's not, you know, super consistent, but he will make impact <laughs> around the line. Yeah, and, the consistency thing. I think, yeah, I think Lynch fell in love with the peak. Oh, for sure. And there was a the lot valleys of are peaks, there. <laughs> right? The valleys are there, but the peaks... And it's not just like a couple. This is a guy that made plays over and over again at USC. Um, now, when he wasn't making plays, he was missing them, right? And that's what they're going to have to try and clean up. But the ability, again, playing forward in that sort of 30-degree cone, about eight yards off the line, he's he's going to make impact. They're going to release him as a missile pretty often throughout the game. Uh, and then Elijah Mitchell, I love, especially in this system. Speed good balance, enough power to run between the tackles. He's not just a one-cut speed guy and a better receiver than people give him credit for. So to get him, again, you can get running back talent late. Like getting Elijah Mitchell in the sixth round, tremendous value, great fit with the system, and is going to be productive. I guarantee you he will get touches. They went through like five running backs last year in San Francisco. They had terrible injury luck overall as a team. But they were, they were playing their fifth running back and he was still being productive mitchell's probably going to be third maybe fourth starting off probably fourth starting off on that depth chart he will get touches this year and he he will make things happen in that offense because he has the physical traits to do it the the 49ers backfield is like so ripe for either daily fantasy or best ball season long i'm not even like traditional season long fantasy football leagues, I'm not touching them because you look at the depth chart and it's Trey Sermon, Wayne Gallman, Raheem Mostert, Michael Hasty, Jeff Wilson. If you ask me who's going to end up with the most carries out of those guys, fuck if I know. I don't. I have no clue. Nobody knows. But if we're, but if we're just drafting them in best ball where it's like we get lucky and they end up as the guy, then they're hyper-valuable, or daily, where the injuries mount up, and you know that this guy's going to be RB1, then they're valuable. Stay away in normal fantasy leagues, but there are certain fantasy formats where these guys are going to be like league winners for you. In terms of real football, not fantasy football, um, this is one of the most exciting and deepest backfields 
in the entire NFL. Because again, you run down those names like Hasty is a guy that you and I both love coming out. Uh, Wilson has just juice on juice on juice. Raheem Mostert, again, juice. Gallman's a physical guy. He's not as physically talented as the rest, but again, he's super physical. Trey Sermon, I think, is like a, a great jack of all trades, which is probably why they went up in the third round to get him. Because he, I think Shanahan sees him as like his Alfred Morris plus, 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 plus. Uh, and then Elijah Mitchell, as you said, is a great complimentary piece as well. They have more guys than than can make the roster at this point. But yeah, I would not be at all surprised if they traded one. Right. Uh, because they're not going to be able to carry yeah. them all. Right. They're not even going to be able to carry. You don't carry three running backs on your practice squad. You just don't. Right. They're probably no. going to carry four <laughs> backs. Maybe, but again, they have a fullback that is incredibly valuable, probably the most valuable fullback in the entire NFL. Yeah. So how many how many roster spots do you give up to the backfield? Four? Five? Uh, yeah. Like five four, seems four like four most lot. likely. Right, but yeah. it's four. And that means three of those guys you mentioned at running back plus use check. So a bunch of these guys are going to end up practice squad, but you can't put four running backs on your practice squad. You can't do it. So I would not be at all surprised to see one of those bottom four guys get traded, especially with Mitchell. Like somebody comes along and says, we want hasty as our, you know, special teamer, fourth running back, whatever. Like they'd probably give him up for a fifth or sixth because they got him as a UDFA. That's still making money from John Lynch's perspective. So yeah, I, I just overall, I love their backfield. I love their offense because, again, you got all those running backs. You got, you know, Kittle coming back healthy. Use check is an elite fullback and one of the one of the most important players in that entire offense. The offensive line is good. I mean, the receivers. If they stay healthy Debo this year, if they don't get just gutted by injuries like they did last year, again, if they stay healthy yeah. this year, look out. Like, cause even gutted last year, they were still a tough out and they still beat people. And they, if you yeah. look at their injury role from last year, it was ridiculous. It was terrible. Like we said, we were there four and five running backs deep, not by choice. They were just rotating them for fun. Like the other three guys ahead of them were out with injuries. So if they stay anywhere near healthier this year, they're going to be a steamroller. Yeah. Seahawks at 49ers, October 3rd. Must see TV. Absolutely must see TV. Because those are probably the two best teams in the division. And they are going to go to blows. Guarantee it. Uh, why don't we get into their UDFA class for the 49ers. Uh, they got Elijah Sullivan from Kansas State. Austin Watkins from UAB. Justin Hilliard. The other, other, other linebacker from Ohio State. And then Josh Peterson from Louisiana Monroe. Uh, Honestly, like this was one of the UDFA classes where I was like, hey, the roster's super loaded and none of these guys were super exciting for me. I don't think any of those guys are going to make the team personally. Practice I'd, squad, probably. But yeah. I, 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 again, I look at their roster and I'm like, are any of these guys beating out any of those guys? And for me, the answer was no. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right that their path to the 53 is rough. Their path to the practice squad, at least for two of them, is pretty good. Austin Watkins is a guy that needs some development as a wide receiver, but he shows some flashes. Um, he's an interesting player, and I think Shanahan's going to like his traits. I can see him sticking on the practice squad. And Hilliard is a guy that makes plays. Like His measurables aren't great. He was not as good as, again... 
two out of the four linebackers uh, at Ohio State ahead of him. Not even really close, but still, regardless of that, he made plays. He's got the knack, right? He's uh, Matt Bowen said players that are around the ball uh, aren't there by accident. Hilliard's around the ball a lot, despite, I should say, despite his physical profile. It's not terrible, but it was nothing like the two guys in front of him at Ohio State. So his real problem was health. If he can stay healthy, he's going to be a guy that could be on the 53 as guys move on or get traded or whatever else. He could be a very valuable pick for them. Uh, and, and I say pick lightly because they picked him up in UDFA. They didn't have to spend a pick on him. But those two guys in particular, um, I think, are interesting watches. Are they likely to make the 53? I would not bet folding money on that. Now, free agency-wise, it was a really interesting free agency period for them, um, mainly for the, the guys that were already on their roster that they had to re-sign. They went into the free agency period in March with three main goals, and that's re-sign Williams, re-sign Verrett, re-sign Juszczyk. They re-signed Williams, they uh, re-signed Verrett, and they re-signed Juszczyk. So they were three for three uh, on their key free agency acquisitions, which, which were really just retentions, which for me, just that alone made this a positive free agency period for them because they didn't take any massive losses. The main guys they lost were Kendrick Bourne, uh, obviously Akello to the Seahawks, and then Solomon Thomas to the Raiders, who's going to be a defensive end slash defensive tackle for them. Uh, all of those guys, I think, were acceptable losses in order to retain Trent, Juszczyk, and Verrett, which were like the three guys that they absolutely 100% equivalently could not afford to lose. So even though they did, um, you know... They, they didn't get everybody back. They got the important ones back, which, uh, and then I think in terms of additions from other teams, uh, you know, they got Mo Sanu from Detroit. They got Benny Fowler. Uh, they got Wayne Gallman. Uh, Samson Ebucam from the Rams came over for, I think it was like a $12 million, $12 million deal. Nate Gary, I could take that or leave it. Jaquiski Tart is back. Uh, DJ Jones. Like it, it was a whole, you know, Arden Key was one of them. Jordan Willis, <laughs> again, it was a whole list of guys that they either retained or poached from other teams. None of them, I think, were like uh, super game-breaking. Like Even the Alex Mack pickup, he's 36. Like Maybe a few years ago, that would have been like a, a major notable free agency pickup. But for me, like what really mattered was that they kept their elite talents in-house and they did that everything else i could take it or leave it the fact that they kept those three guys automatically for me made this a winning free agency period and a winning offseason for the 49ers yeah they got their top guys for sure and we talked about Kerry Hyder and how much we liked him but he signed a six million dollar deal or you know six million for this season so they Hyder was one of their ascending talents but other people saw that and were willing to pay more for that so what did they do? Like John Lynch is not dumb. He took a bunch of dart throws that don't add up to six million and give him three or four options at replacing some of that production, right? They go out, they get Maurice Hurst from Las Vegas, who I think was probably not utilized necessarily as well as he could be by the Raiders, but he might be by D'Amico Ryans. They paid a million bucks for Maurice Hurst. Arden Key, same thing. 25-year-old defensive end, super talented at LSU, never really, you know, got it together in the league. Maybe he comes in and gives them some production. 
a million bucks. So now you're up to two million bucks. You're still four million below what the Seahawks paid Hyder. And you know, you get a Jordan Willis, 26, right? They re-sign him less than a million bucks, 990,000. So you just take a bunch of swings. It's not that much different than the draft, right? Additional swings, low risk. If you cut a guy that you're paying a million dollars, it's not that big of a deal. The guaranteed cash is probably pretty small. And if any of them hit, you're good to go. Kwan Williams is a guy I really like at corner. I'd like to see what he can do. Again, he struggled with injuries, but you know, if he stays healthy, <laughs> Jason Verrett was a guy that struggled to stay healthy. Finally got to San Francisco, stayed healthy, and played amazing because he's a talented player. Kwan Williams could be similar. Um, the guys up the top, I like Gallman. It was an interesting choice because I think Gallman had a great season last year in, in an elevated role. After Saquon went down, he was really productive down the stretch but he doesn't fit that kind of for talking about players and molds right that san francisco backfield running back one cut outside oh, no goal. he is a north south he's he's north south he's crafty between the tackles he's gonna he's a guy that can grind out yards he can he can help you in the passing game in the short passing game he's super reliable for the giants last year but it was an interesting pickup again they didn't pay a ton for him under a million bucks great backup insurance in case they have another terrible run uh and then trent williams kind of counts on there as well uh that's a big deal for them but uh overall they took a lot of sort of what i would call reasonable swings are any of these like scale tippers no the scale tippers are the guys you talked about that they signed at the top the guys they retained right the guys they had to have if any of these guys hit, it's gravy. For a million bucks in the NFL right now, if Arden Key suddenly lights the switch under D'Amico Ryans and, and comes up with four or five sacks in, in situational rush duty for 990000 like, winning. So, smart football from the front office. How crazy is it, by the way, uh, you know, after the Falcons got a second-round pick for Mosinu, that <laughs> Mosinu is now, like, wide receiver three or four what is it like 18 months later, not even on, on the, on the 49ers and how the Falcons, because of that Shannon Sharp fiasco, not to get on a tangent, but I feel like we do have to talk about this cause it's crazy. <laughs> uh, because of that Shannon Sharp potentially illegal fiasco, by the way, according to California law, the Patriots or the, the Falcons are now trying to hold out for a second round pick at most for Julio Jones it was reported that they might at most get a third now because cat's out of the bag. Teams know he wants out. That's going to depress his value. How crazy is it going to be when the Falcons get less for Julio Jones than Mohamed Sanu? The reality of the NFL is a very fickle beast. <laughs> and yeah, if you put those two things objectively against each other, it makes zero sense. None. <laughs> there is no justification for that at all. But the reality is the Sanu deal was too high. A lot of people said so, said so at the time. They were like, nah. <laughs> and the Jones deal is going to be too low because of circumstances largely beyond their control, beyond the team's control. In any given year, you probably still get either a low first or like a conditional first for Jones, definitely a second. Like you can say what you want about Julio. Julio, when he came back last year, took right over as the alpha, although they already had an alpha and Calvin Ridley, like the first couple games back, I remember like going, Oh, 
yeah, guess who's back, right? <laughs> he didn't skip a beat, right? That guy is yeah. dominant. He's he's crazy good. The idea that you might only squeak out a third for him. Everybody's like, oh, it's the money and the age. Yeah, it's the money and the age. Guys that are that talented get paid again and again. They grab high picks again and again. So if that were come to pass, that's two random snapshots for the NFL that stacked up side by side don't make any sense. Um, yeah, that'll be... Uh, that'll be tough to swallow. I just, man, I, I feel for Falcons fans right now. I, again, this is NFC West episode, but I I know what it's like to uh, to lose a star receiver to um, absolutely gut-wrenching circumstances. And I, I, I know how it feels, guys. If you're a Falcons fan listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I feel the cap a situation screwed them. Bit- I feel a little bit less worse for Falcons fans than I do for Texans fans, though, because if Julio (laughs) leaves, like you're into Alpha 1A with Calvin Ridley and you're not really going to skip a beat. Calvin Ridley showed last year he could easily step into that role and well deserves to be a number one on some team. So although Julio is amazing, we just said that you also have equally amazing right there and you just got Kyle Pitts. So the Texans had no such luck, right? That was not. Hey, what do you mean? We got we got David Johnson. <laughs> I I oh, rest my case. Gosh. I have nothing else to say, Your Honor. Uh, oh, anyways, um, overall, San Francisco, nice work in free agency. I don't think they overpaid for anybody. They kept their important players. Uh, UDFA, a couple of swings, but we both probably agree those are practice squad swings. And then the draft. Very solid. I actually considered them for my for my top three drafts. And let's be honest, if Trey becomes a 10-year starter, a guy that makes a second contract in San Francisco, we don't even have to say they 10-year win. starter. If if they re-sign his fifth-year option and, he beca- and they sign him to a second contract in San Francisco, this is a winning draft. That's the deal. When you pick a quarterback up that high, that's the deal. He makes it, you win. He bombs out, you lose. That's it. But the rest of the draft... Really, really solid. I could see, you know, easily three or four of those guys sticking with the team uh, longer term and contributing. They're they're all really talented players, and I, I like the scheme fits as well. Keep an eye on Ambry Thomas, man. If he becomes half of what he flashed uh, last year, he opted out this year, before he opted out from his 2019 tape, man. Oh, that, that guy's super talented. <laughs> Why don't we get into uh, the Rams now, which had one of those off seasons where we started out going like, oh man, this is phenomenal. The Rams are, (laughs) the Rams are doing it. They're taking that next step. And then slowly but surely things started to kind of chip away. And it's like, okay, they're losing this guy. They're losing that guy. They made what pick in the second round? They made what pick in the third round? And all of a sudden, you get to the end of the offseason, you're like, you built up all this goodwill, and then I feel like you kind of cut the legs out from under it, not going to lie. like It it was a very up-and-down offseason for the Rams. There was some stuff I loved. There was some stuff I did not love at all. But why don't we start, uh, as usual, with the front office and coaching staff review. So we got Les Snead going into year 10. Uh, as general manager, Sean McVay, already going into year five at head coach, and what a five years it has been. Uh, Kevin O'Connell going into year two 
at offensive coordinator Raheem Morris in year one, replacing Brandon Staley at defensive coordinator. You know, I, I think it's going to be mostly more of the same because, again, it's Sean McVay's offense. It's very similar to Shanahan's. Like, it doesn't matter who the OC is. Like, it's a collaborative process. And, oops, almost knocked over my whiskey. And in the end, like, Sean is going to have a, a, a massive say, not just in game planning, but also in situational play calling. Like, his fingerprints are going to be everywhere. So, uh, I the offense, I don't think, is going to really change other than the quarterback position. Uh, on defense... That's the one that I'm very curious to see, because when we looked at what Raheem Morris did at defensive coordinator for the Falcons last year, it was very different than what Brandon Staley did uh, when he was there uh, with the Rams last year, philosophically speaking. And again, you can take this with a grain of salt because it's pro football focus and depending on how much you believe in their charting and, and everything like that uh, and you know what constitutes man coverage what constitutes zone coverage but when you look at like the man coverage and zone coverage rates the Rams last year under Staley were dead last in pure across the board man coverage called I know that Jalen Ramsey was in man all the time but most of the defense was in zone and in terms of like pure cover one or cover two man coverage calls, they were 32nd in the NFL at 12%. They rarely called straight-up man coverage, whereas Raheem Morris with the Falcons called it pretty much dead middle of the pack at about 33 34%. Their pressure rates in terms of, like, blitzes called uh, was about the same. It was, like, 31 and 33%. So when the, when the Rams called blitzes, it was more zone blitzes than man blitzes were as when the Falcons called blitzes it was more man blitzes than zone blitzes so the, the blitzing I think was similar tendency but the coverage tendency was very very different functionally speaking so what I'm curious to see is does Raheem just carry over what worked last year and just play a lot of quarters you know, rotate from too high down to cover three, leave Jalen Ramsey in man coverage and have everybody else zone off the entire rest of the field? Or does he do more what Atlanta did, where you're playing a little bit more single high man coverage, you're playing a little bit more two man, you're playing, you know, you're calling more man blitzes. Like, I'm, I'm very curious to see what he does because we've seen largely the same personnel for the Rams execute in like three or four different systems now and they've had some very good defenses all under very different coordinators and for the first time in a while I I, I now wonder if they're going to bring in a different coordinator but run the same defense because it worked so well last year I bet it's going to change a little bit but I've got faith in Raheem Morris because you look at the improvement in Atlanta last year when he took over right when when he took the reins, that team defensively especially was lost, right? <laughs> and he gets to be the head coach, and within two weeks, they rally and start playing really competent defense, right? Because the first six weeks of the season, they got gutted repeatedly late in games, and it was really difficult to watch. He takes over as the interim head coach. That defense gels and starts playing as a unit, like as a professional middle of the pack unit within like a week and a half. Like by the, by yeah. the two week mark, it was totally different. It's like, wow, 
he's <laughs> he definitely wasn't his say wasn't getting to the top because if it was they would have been doing that beforehand right so very competent defensive coach that's been exposed to a lot of different schemes um and i think is going to be willing to adapt very willing to adapt to the players he's got in the fold he's going to realize with aaron donald i don't have to blitz like i used to to get pressure so the interplay between the line and the secondary is what i'm most interested in if you're going to call that blitz are you calling man on the back end or are you calling zone on the back end right are you going to play press you're going to play off like how are you going to how are you going to mesh the front half and the back half of that defense um and quite frankly can you use the linebackers a little bit better um la's linebackers haven't been used tremendously well um since Corey littleton was there but anyways uh it'll be really interesting to see how that works i'm with you on the offense and i have to ask you a question the more i listen to sean McVay, the more he sounds like another current nfl head coach and it's not something i noticed before this is um Pete schrager is uh hosting a podcast on uh bill simmons ringer channel uh, with McVeigh for the next, I don't know, month or a couple of months called Flying Coach. And they have other coaches on. So it was Schrager and McVeigh, and then they had Sala and uh, Lafleur. All four mm. of them were on a, on a podcast. And I was listening. It started, the clip started off with Lafleur talking. Um, and then McVeigh jumped in. And I had to do a double take because he sounded just like Gruden. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard him in interviews, like even going back to like Washington and when he first started uh, with the Rams, were like, if you just close your eyes, it's it's a similar speech pattern. I was cadence, like, that's John like, Gruden. It was crazy. Yeah. I'm looking right at McVeigh and his mouth is moving and all I can hear is Gruden. And I, I hadn't had that before. I hadn't put the two together. Sounds like you had farther back. But anyways, good podcast. Check it out. Uh, called Flying Coach. But um It'll be really interesting. It's McVay's offense, but come on, Matt Stafford, right? That's what you were talking about at the beginning of the offseason. That was the move. Getting golf for Stafford, clear upgrade for the Rams. Really excited to see what Matt Stafford can do in that offense. I know McVay is as well. And it was kind of like, hey, the rest of the offseason's gravy. And we're going to talk about that because it didn't quite turn out <laughs> that way. Well, why don't we get into to who they drafted? Because that was where I think it started kind of going downhill a little bit. Um, you know, you use your first round pick. Uh, who was this? Uh, so this first round pick was part of the Stafford trade, if I remember correctly. It was not part of the Jalen Ramsey trade. I think they, I think they finished that out and then immediately traded a first round pick for Stafford. So uh, they're just never going to pick in the first round again. But they keep getting good players out of it. So who cares? So let's just say their first round pick was Matt Stafford. That in itself, great, fine. Uh, second round pick, Tutu Atwell out of Louisville was wild to me, um, and I'll 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 say why in a second. So, third round pick, they come back with Ernest Jones from South Carolina, the inside linebacker. Uh, fourth round, they got Bobby Brown from Texas A&M. That was a pick I actually really liked a lot. Robert Rochelle from Central Arkansas in the fourth round. That was a little rich for me. Jacob Harris from UCF, uh, wide receiver slash tight end. That one, again, I like that one a lot. So we're kind of like fluctuating pretty heavily here. Ernest Brown from Northwestern in the fifth round. And then in the seventh round, they had a trio of Jake Funk, the running back from Maryland, who averaged, what was it, like nine yards a carry or something crazy like that. Uh, ben 
uh, Skarnek, I believe is how it's pronounced, from Notre Dame, the wide receiver, and then Chris Garrett from Concordia St. Paul. I'll, I'll touch on the 2-2 pick first here. He's 155 pounds. Like, I don't care if you classify him as gadget player, running back, receiver. He's your new Tavon Austin. Fine, whatever. Tavon Austin had like 25 pounds on this guy. Like, he's 155 pounds. Mm -hmm. And there were so many other dynamic receivers, dynamic threats with the ball in their hand on the board. Like, the Seahawks got Dwayne Eskridge after Tutu Atwell, I believe, if I remember correctly. And Dwayne Eskridge is already kind of a thin guy himself, and he dwarfs Tutu Atwell. Like, I again, this is nothing against Tutu. A 155-pound NFL player, if he gets blown up by Jamal Adams on third and seven, he might turn into a fine pink mist. Like, I... Again, it's just some dudes are just small and not like a, okay, maybe he might, you know, not be able to do some things small. Like some people question Devante, uh, Devante Smith, you know, being able to fight through tackles because he's like 170 or whatever he is. Like 155 is 15 pounds lighter. And we were already questioning Devonta's size. When he gets hit, I am legitimately worried for his safety. I don't know. I just don't understand taking him in the second round. Yeah, it was early. And just to clarify, he was the actually the pick after Dwayne Eskridge, like literally one pick later. Okay. And he is dinky. You were questioning Devonta's size, not me, because, again, he's proved it. And look, <laughs> Tutu Atwell is a super tough guy. But if you want to talk about weight, that's one thing. But let's talk about physical dimensions, right? Uh, Devonta Smith, for all of his 170 pounds, has arms that go down past his hips, right? It gives <laughs> him a tremendous catch radius, right? So it's it's a strange physical profile, but it works extremely well. Tutu doesn't have that, right? He is not only 155 pounds. He is small of frame. He is a small target. Um these are guys that you take, you know, if you're going to compare this guy to somebody else, like, let's talk about Demetric Felton. He went, yeah. <laughs> he's bigger, he's quick, yeah. he's undersized, but he's way bigger than Atwell. And when did Demetric Felton get drafted? Like fifth round, sixth round? Sixth round, yeah. Yeah, somewhere around there. So... It's not that I don't like Tutu Atwell. He is a tremendously feisty player. He was productive at Louisville. He is electric with the ball in his hands, much like Felton, much like Eskridge, much like a lot of guys that we've talked about. But round two, pick 25, 155 pounds, not any other crazy physical dimension, you know, huge hands, long arms that really set him apart. It's an odd, we're just going to call it what it is, it's an odd risk right to take mm -hmm. that high of a pick because my other question on the flip side of the coin is if you don't take Tutu Atwell at 225 when do you think he goes is there any other team that would take him on day two I don't know that there is No, I think fourth is the earliest the yeah. earliest that's that means not that pick not your next pick you could honestly look at him they had the 12th pick in the fourth round 
if we're talking about day three picks, like that's the one they took Bobby Brown with. Do you think Tutu Atwell is going to be there at round four, pick 12? I'd give you pretty much even money that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'd yeah. be there. Um, so it's just a strange value pick. I think the player is exciting, but again, he doesn't have anything that sets him apart um, physically, and he has some uh, real outlier <laughs> things working against him in terms of uh, success rates. For you know, you saw these success rates of players lower than uh, like typically 170, 175, and they were all aimed at Devonta. Well, all those apply to Tutu and more. So 225 is a very strange pick for him. Three of the first four receivers, like the, the in terms of out of the four receivers that went after 2-2, like directly after 2-2, three out of the four of them are Terrace Marshall, Amari Rogers, and Diami Brown. He yes, went yes, ahead of yes. all those guys. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, and yes. I would take all those guys above 2-2 because, again, you're gambling that a guy at that size – Historical norms in the league say he has a very small chance of success. Now, I don't have a problem gambling on those guys because occasionally you hit, but you gamble on those guys in the fifth or the sixth or the seventh. Yeah. You don't take them at 225. Um, and Ernest Jones, the next pick for South Carolina, I liked Ernest Jones as like a fifth or sixth rounder. DJ brought yeah. him up. Daniel Jeremiah brought him up early in the process. We were looking at him and, you know, he said, I think he's a guy that has good potential that you're going to be able to get in the later rounds as a, as a, you know, as a fifth or sixth or seventh round flyer. I think he has more potential and, you know, he'll probably be undervalued at that range. At pick 40 <laughs> overall, yeah. he, he didn't show me that on film. Let's be honest. And he is, he had an injury issue as well, South Carolina. So again, Whatever the Rams brass saw in those two players, because that's a really uh, difficult, I would say, value proposition to start your draft. 2-2 two, two at 225 and Ernest Jones at 340. When you look at the opportunity cost of all the other players that were available at those slots, it was a rough start. Like, this is the one draft. We went through all the drafts for our best draft episode. This is the one draft that I was like, I don't get it, right? I just yeah. don't understand what you think. Down the board a little bit, taking a swing with Funk in the seventh. It's a seventh-round pick. Jake Funk, absolutely worth it. You know, Bobby Brown the third. We love Bobby Brown the third. And sitting beside Aaron Donald, if you want to talk about landing spot, like, I love the that. best. It's <laughs> tremendous. Yeah. That's great. But that's your pick at 412, right? You're now into solid day three picks. Robert Rochelle, same thing. Physical marvel. Is he going to be ready for the NFL field as a starter within the first year and a half? Maybe. You don't really need him. But, again, that's a high fourth-round pick. Jacob Harris, we both like, and, and the Rams analytics department really loved his production. Not even his size and speed metrics. They liked those, but his production metrics clicked one of their boxes, and they were all about Jacob Harris. I think that's a good pick. Again, 436 is a great place to take a a value shot on a guy that can be a valuable cog in your offense that your analytics identify as this is a fit. Cool. Uh, Ernest Brown from Northwestern. Again, you're down in, to the end of the fifth round. I think he's a player that sh uh, 
I was fine with that one. I think he can be a better pro than he was in college, especially if he ends up on a talented Rams defensive line with depth and he doesn't have to produce right away. But really, you're talking about starting to get happy with their draft at 436. Yeah. <laughs> right? 412 is the first one we are like, yeah, at 436, you're okay. And, and they get a couple more hits on the way down. But top to bottom, and especially the value of those more valuable picks, two and three. Again, Stafford's their first pick great that is a tremendous upgrade and again if it works they win that part of their offseason and, and probably quite a few more games because look Stafford's a better quarterback than Goff but boy you're gonna you're gonna find some some value hits down the road if you're constantly giving away your first pick and then you're using two and three on Tutu Atwell and Ernest Jones I I would take a sort of I would take the over on neither one of those guys getting a second contract with the Rams they might play well or decently through their rookie contract, but I don't think they probably either get resigned, re-upped, right? And if you're doing that I, with second and third round picks, you're like, where you're like, eh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's I just tough. It's tough. I just think second round is like second round is where receivers like Allen Robinson and Devontae Adams have gone, Jordy Nelson, not a the fact that Terrace player. Marshall's available and you take Tutu Atwell is like. Mind blowing yeah. to me. I I, it's, I can't possibly justify that analytics or otherwise. I'm just like, no way, <laughs> no way. Yeah. In terms of um, UDFAs, we've had uh, wide receiver Landon Akers from Iowa State, uh, Alaric Jackson, who I did not think was going to go undrafted Mm-mm. out of Iowa. They got him as UDFA, which honestly I could have swapped him out for some of their draft picks, and I would have been totally fine with that. Agreed. Uh, Paris Ford from uh, safety from Pittsburgh, who had like all time unfortunate pro day, <laughs> likely went undrafted because of it. Uh, Javon Grant from Merrimack, who I did not get to study him because he went to Merrimack. Uh, Jer- Jeremiah Hadel from Texas State. Again, I didn't get to look at him either. Jordan Meredith. I did. Uh, I watched two games from Western Kentucky, and I had a UDFA grade on him, so that sounds about right. Uh, Max Roberts from BC. I did not get to look at him. Uh, George uh, Silvanick from Air Force. There were, Air Force had like three or four guys that were getting buzz on draft Twitter but I never got around to watching Air Force games, especially the quarterback who was getting a lot of buzz towards the end because he's just toolsy as all hell. Uh, but he had some off-the-field stuff that I think was was working against him. But I didn't get to watch any of the Air Force guys. Uh, and then you got Troy Warner from BYU, who I also had an undrafted grade on. He was a safety, so that was about right. He'll probably be a practice squad guy, a special teamer. And then Bronte Harris from UAB, I actually had a day three draftable grade on. Um, I, I got to him very late in the process. So uh, getting him as, as probably a priority free agent, I think was good for them. He'll compete to uh, replace Troy Hill at nickel. Whether he wins that job is anyone's guess, but I think I think there's a decent chance that he makes the roster. So again, you're getting two guys, two undrafted free agents, and him and Alaric Jackson that I think have pretty good chances to make the roster. And if you get two two guys to make your final 52 or 53 out of the UDFA class. That's not bad. Yeah. Larry Jackson's the one that really sticks out for me. Uh, Paris Ford had a terrible pro day, but when you went back to Hamlin was Tamar Hamlin was the much better safety out of that backfield. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited that he ended up being a Buffalo bill. But um, again, Paris Ford, take a swing. 
He did make some plays for the pit defense, but Alaric Jackson, both you and I were really surprised that he didn't get drafted. One of those guys that you look through after the draft and you're like, where'd he go? And you're like, he didn't go. Oh, um, ends up Rams line, uh, is a guy that could develop and has probably a decent path to playing time at the Rams Rams line, not overtly loaded and, and is going to have some turnover in the next few years. And that's when Jackson will probably be ready. Um, I could see him, you know, making the practice squad this year and possibly being elevated if they suffer injuries. Um, don't know why he went undrafted as we don't with a lot of players. Uh, but again, their UDFA class, like Alaric Jackson was like, yeah. And then there's a couple other guys like Warner. I was like, mm, okay. <laughs> right. But it wasn't like the Seahawks UDFA class where you're like, damn, I thought he was going to get drafted. Damn. I thought he was going to get drafted. Damn. They got him too. You know, so some teams really know how to hit it in UDFA. Again, we'll know uh, with UDFAs, you typically know in a year, <laughs> right? Either yeah. they're gone or they made the practice squad, which is still a win. Um, it's not like draft picks where you need to wait two or three years to see how they really uh, season out. Uh, most of the UDFA class will disappear after a year. If guys are still sticking around on your team, uh, it's a win. And if guys are getting any kind of starts, even if it is a replacement type start and you paid nothing for them in draft capital, that's a huge win. Um, so, again, you don't need to get a lot out of your UDFA classes, but some teams are clearly better at uh, wooing agents and, and selling the chance that their guys are going to get to play. Um, but really, when you stack it up with their draft class, it was kind of like, hey, your draft class was hit and miss at best, and your UDFA class was well, maybe one guy, maybe two. Uh, it just didn't feel super strong, especially and maybe this is just the the bias of swing right that stafford was such a huge hit such a large win that anything else was going to feel like a little bit of a letdown but honestly i think they could have probably done better in both arenas well the hits kept on coming when it came to free agency because you know they picked up uh deshaun jackson and Corey bohorquez which you know especially deshaun jackson you're like him and stafford together hell yeah sign me up but when you look at what they lost in free agency, balancing out the Deshaun pickup, they lost John Johnson and Troy Hill. John Johnson, one of the better safeties in the league. Troy Hill was a very good nickel for them. They lost Gerald Everett to uh, to the Seahawks. They lost Josh Reynolds, who was their very reliable fourth receiver. They lost Samson Ebucam and Derek Rivers. They lost Malcolm Brown. They lost Michael Brockers and Morgan Fox. Like... They lost a lot of dudes, and it's like, well, we got Deshaun Jackson. So, well, for how many games? You know, so when I look at the draft and I look at free agency, I left wanting. Like, the Stafford pickup was great. Love so it. it's like you could you could argue the Stafford pickup balances out literally everything else, but the structure around the quarterback is worse, in my opinion. Like, it's just worse. And so will there be a net gain in wins? Like this is going to be a fascinating case study where it's like, if you reduce the overall talent on the team, but you increase the quarterback talent, do you win more games? This is going to be the case study for that. How important is it to get an upgraded quarterback? If you weaken the roster around him in the process through just straight up roster attrition, cap struggles, like, it's it, I'm I'm fascinated to watch the Rams this year because I genuinely have no idea if they're going to be better or worse. And that's after getting an upgraded quarterback. 
Yeah, health is going to have a lot to do with it because their roster becomes more dependent on a few players. And hmm, we saw a roster like that last year that we called mm-hmm. out in our divisional previews with the Cardinals, right? And we said, man, if everybody stays healthy, their top-tier talent is great. That upper crust is solid. They could compete with anybody. They suffered a few, just a few key injuries early on, more later, but never really recovered and i feel like the rams are the same way if you look at their top tier talent and again if deshaun jackson stays healthy in that third or fourth wide receiver role you know you got woods and cam Akers, darrell henderson stafford and sean jackson and tyler higby and like the offense looks pretty good right i think that's a better offense than than stafford's used to from his detroit years right if everybody stays healthy but if you lose Jackson and he doesn't really hook up with Tyler Higby, you're down to like Woods and two running backs uh, who you probably can't play at the same time. It could get thin really quickly. And Stafford's going to be making do just like he was for a lot of years in Detroit on the defensive side, guys like Brockers were down eaters for them. They're going to need Bobby Brown to come in and, and take a bunch of those Brockers reps because look, they, they retain Floyd. <laughs> you have, the best defensive lineman in football right now and Aaron Donald. Um, and, you know, Donald's been extremely healthy and Floyd was wildly productive first time in his career last year that he was really, truly like off the charts productive. And, but if either one of those guys gets hurt and Bobby Brown's still sort of developing as a rookie, look, the secondary still pretty good. Um, had some losses at linebacker that again, you're going to be counting on a, uh, third round pick out of south carolina who (laughs) might show more in his in his pro home than he did in his college home but that seems like a rough bet so i'm with you that on paper right off the top huge upgraded quarterback and if everything else stays the same they're going to be a very tough out if they suffer a few key losses on either side of the ball they're going to struggle to string together wins in what is a tough division Yeah, like what happens if Leonard Floyd gets hurt? They don't have anybody else that can play that role. Like they have have no, like Terrell Lewis is not going backwards as well as Leonard Floyd does. Like Ernest Brown is not playing that role as well as he does. Um, Like I, they don't have any safeties that are as good as John Johnson. (laughs) Like I I don't know, man. I don't know what they're going to do. They're a fascinating team because they can potentially be better despite having a worse overall roster solely because of quarterback and coach. Yeah, they're going to pick up. I mean, Stafford is going to get them a couple of wins. He is a guy that, uh, especially in the fourth quarter, uh, can do things that Goff typically didn't. Now Goff had his fourth quarter comebacks. He had some of those. Uh, But Stafford is a guy that is going to give you more on average every week uh, than Goff was. And he's going to pick up. The, The NFL is classically a game of inches. It's a game of making a few plays here or there. And Stafford makes more of those than Goff does. So, but Stafford is not a spring chicken either. He's had back injuries. Uh, you know, he's he's a warrior, super tough. He's played through everything. But he takes a terrible hit in week four. Like, everything we're just kind of loading onto. Well, they got, they won Stafford, so it was a great offseason. Stafford goes down for any reason. I hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that he gets to play a full healthy season because I want to see it. I want to see McVay's offense with Stafford triggering it. That's going to be fun. Um, 
But if that happens, like all bets are off for the Rams. And you can say whatever you want yeah. about their backup quarterback. I know Mina Kimes, huge fan. Uh, and, you know, good honor. But if you think you're going to win as many games without Stafford as you would have with, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that argument. Yeah. Overall, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating team, both for good reasons and for bad reasons. And they just happen to be in a very <laughs> tough division. So we'll see if it works out for yeah. them. Closing out the uh, NFC West here with the Arizona Cardinals, who overall I think had a pretty positive offseason. You know, there were some losses, but I think their their gains, both in free agency and the draft, uh, outpaced those losses. So overall, I think the Cardinals are in a much better position in May of 2021 than they were in May of 2020. That's for damn sure. We'll start off with uh, the front office and coaching review. Steve Keim in year nine. Uh, already a general manager. I think, uh, is he one of the elite general managers in the league? Like, you know, are we holding him up in the, in the pantheon of, you know, front office decision makers? No, but I think he's, he's been very solid for them. He's made a lot of good picks. There's been uh, rumblings among Cardinals fandom in the last couple years of people saying, uh, Kime's got to go. The roster depth isn't there, but I agree the roster depth wasn't there, but man, the top level that he built was pretty damn impressive, and I wanted to give him at least another year to see if he could fill out that depth, and I think he's done a nice job of that. So overall, I'm a fan of Steve Kime. I'm a fan of what he built. It took him, It took the Cardinals a while to get there, but I think they got there. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury going into year three. Again, a lot, of, a lot of Cardinals fans are kind of iffy on Cliff's offense, but I want to see what it looks like when... There's more receiver talent, and when they have an actual healthy quarterback and some real offensive line depth for once, like, again, this this was a rebuild. This was a tear-it-down, gut-to-the-foundation rebuild. Like, they were picking first overall a couple years ago. So I was more than happy to give Cliff some time and to, to give Steve some time to rebuild the roster. And, I again, I think both of them are in a good position now compared to where they were a year ago. Uh, at coordinator, Cliff is the offensive coordinator, so we'll just leave him there. And then Vance Joseph also going into year three, who is another guy who I think has made strides uh, with each passing year and kind of filled in holes where he needed to fill in. Um, there was a, a certainly a dearth of talent in year one. Year two, you know, you bring in Isaiah Simmons to fill a much needed role uh, at Mo linebacker or at. Uh, kind of a star type position, not like a star, like, oh my God, he's a star, but like the actual position star, <laughs> uh, you know, so he played a little bit of that for them. You know, they want to use him as, as what they say is a matchup weapon on defense, which for me just means like, okay, so he's going to be the weak side inside linebacker and match up against running backs in space. Cause that's literally what he's going to do. So it's like, you can, you can use a fancy term for it, but that's literally what it is. But you know, they needed that and they got that last year. You know, they filled in some talent gaps this year by getting Zayvon Collins, who we'll talk about. So I, I know the system that Vance wants to run because it's very similar to what Wade Phillips runs, and I think they're finally starting to accumulate the talent, especially bringing in some of the free agents that they did, that they can run it to its max potential. So again, I, I'm, I'm very positive overall on the coaching staff they've built, on the front office, like the overall organizational leadership structure of the Cardinals, I think finally in year three of this regime is in a good spot. And I'm pretty optimistic about it. Yeah, I 
I see it as a real tilt year for the Cardinals because, yes, they have uh, assembled more talent. They have familiarity with the system, and hopefully they get health. Last year, they did not have great luck with injuries. They weren't the hardest hit team in the league, but they certainly suffered some very key ones, and that definitely affected the bottom line at the end of the year for them, especially with Kyler taking that shot sort of mid season, he was not himself. He was, he was yeah, bound up the, and wound up for the, the shoulder for the season, just couldn't play at the same level. Um, so that's always going to be a thing. Again, we talked about the possibility of Stafford getting hurt. It's no different for, for a guy like Kyler. That is, is really a key cog in that offense. Super exciting player, but I also feel like the league is starting to figure out what to do with him. He's still going to have those runs where he breaks your defensive plan into complete shambles. I think defensive coordinators are coming to accept that and deciding what else they can limit to make him have to take those runs because he also exposes himself to shots, which, you know, do add up. He's not the biggest guy. Um, And I feel like it's up to Cliff and Kyler to show that they can readjust, right? The league has adjusted for the most part. Kyler's still going to do amazing things from time to time, but you don't want to have to rely on your quarterback playing hero ball to win on the regular. And if you do, you're going to have a high variability of results, right? Yeah. You're going to, you're going to win huge sometimes and you're going to have the, the hail Murray's, of the world and then other times you're going to come up short because you're asking your quarterback to do something otherworldly and he couldn't do it this week and that's that's not a fair expectation to have every week to have to have happen to win so it'll be really interesting to see how they adjust they did add some receiver talent as well Kime, i feel like is almost uh, that in the gm role personified it's high variability right you get Hopkins in a trade, right? Because the GM is in charge of the draft and trades. They're they're in charge of building the entire roster. You get DeAndre Hopkins in a trade. That is a coup for a general manager. You look back at some of his drafts, high highs and low lows, right? That yeah. variability. Andy Isabella is <laughs> taking yeah, Andy I, Isabella before the DK Metcalf. <laughs> Ah, that's don't read my mind get out of my mind no it's literally the guy i was thinking of that was much like a tutu atwell not picked as high but when he was picked there were other guys on the board and you're like really you're gonna do everything because he's fast and he did like he really thought he could make that work he's still in the roster is he you know can he make that work this year maybe but i I don't think any isabella is suddenly going to ascend right they went out and got more receiving talent which we'll get to but i feel like they're in a place where they have the talent. If they stay healthy, this is sort of a year where yes, they could it could manifest and they could they could prove themselves true contenders. But if they don't, like what's left? Because you kind of have set the table, right? They they have enough pieces now. Last year you can say injuries and it was only year two, and now it's year three. You have all the pieces. If everybody stays healthy and they underachieve or sort of have middling success what do you what do you do in arizona right do you just run it back again i don't know i don't think people are really thinking about that and it feels like kind of a tipping point to me because if that happens if they finish sub 500 this year like what are you going to sell to the fan base to say no no we'll be better next year right you got to go get a new quarterback is that the thing like uh 
feels like that would be a tough sell. Oh, we're going to go get more what, (laughs) right? You pretty much got high level talent at the top of the roster. If you can't make this work, I think, I think the seat's going to get real warm in Arizona. Is it a guaranteed out if they don't? I don't think so. But I think a lot more questions are going to be asked about, okay, <laughs> they had everything they needed. They've been here three years and we're at, we're at 500. What's up with that? I think it depends on how you lose. You know, of course. It's like, are you losing because the roster gets decimated by injuries or are you losing because you're just losing? You know, it's like, are you losing like the Chargers loss last year where it's like, man, these are just inexcusable losses and you had the talent, you should have won those games. Or are you losing because Chandler Jones gets hurt again, hurt again and Kyler Murray gets hurt and J.J. Watt gets hurt. And like, is it a quote unquote acceptable, understandable losing season? Or sure. is it an, oh my God, why are you managing a game this poorly kind of losing season which is what ultimately yeah, is it a season that makes everybody go back and re-examine cliff kingsbury's college records yeah. again <laughs> because yeah, yeah which, if again, they stay I, healthy that's good that is going to be the thing that happens like this guy never had a winning season at texas tech yeah you're gonna hear I, it again i i'm a cliff believer by the way so again, i love his Cardinal run games i think his run game is fascinating one of the most interesting run games in the nfl but look, the NFL is a meritocracy. And if you have Kyler Murray and a bunch of offensive weapons and your GM has stocked cupboard and you come out sub 500, questions will be asked. Yeah. I Again, I don't think that they will be, but it is a worthy thing to bring up. Uh, now, I, I do want to talk about their draft class because I, I feel like Steve Kime did a pretty darn good job here. And I, I think top to bottom, like first round to seventh round, we're we're looking at a pretty strong class here. Zaven Collins at 16th overall. A lot of people were scratching their heads at that pick. You and I were not. That was absolutely appropriate value for Zaven Collins. Rondale Moore in round two. Loved that. Loved the fit in the offense. I think Cliff really knows how to use a guy like that. I think he's going to be um, active early and often. Marco Wilson in the fourth round. Super, super athletic corner. Like, Legit 4-3 guy, jumps 43 and a half inches, crazy, crazy athlete. Uh, you know, he he's the, the guy who infamous, infamously threw the shoe and, uh, you know, <laughs> cost Florida a game. Whether or not that cost him in his draft stock, I have no idea, but that's what most people know him from. Uh, and then you got uh, Victor, you know, I practiced this earlier, Dimokeji from Duke, uh, who I did not get around to watching, full disclosure, but sixth round pick so it's not super consequential but i did watch tay gowan uh pretty religiously their other sixth round pick who i loved and i thought he was going to go a lot earlier than the sixth i don't know if it was because of the opt-out like why he fell or if there was medical or, or what uh i i have no idea why he fell to the sixth round but somebody that talented like honestly if you swapped him and Marco Wilson I wouldn't have been like offended or even if you just drafted him in the same spot as Marco Wilson because Marco Wilson shouldn't have been a sixth round pick but let's just say if take Allen was taken in the fourth round I would have been like yeah that's normal that's perfectly fine uh James Wiggins again ultra athletic safety from Cincinnati a little bit inconsistent I didn't like him as much as his teammate 
But when you look at his special teams potential, his athleticism, like he was on our ball of clay list for, clay list for a reason because he's just a phenomenal athlete. And then uh, Michael Manet, at least I think it's Manet, not Menet, uh, from Penn State, who's an interior offensive line, could play center, could play guard. I'm not entirely sure where they project him at. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see where he lands there in camp. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if he ends up with the practice squad because they just got Rodney Hudson. Like, there's no way he's ever starting or even approaching starting over Rodney Hudson. But again, you know, just looking at their draft class uh, from top to bottom, I was a big fan of what Steve Kime did. I think they, they plugged a lot of holes in particular uh, at linebacker and at receiver, or just call it playmaker. And then at corner was their other big hole. I think they got two guys that uh, could get pretty significant snaps early. So I I was, again, huge fan of what Steve Kime did. What was your overall impression of their draft class? It was good. And I think we talked about their division rival in the Rams really sort of uh, not using their top two picks as well as they could have. And I think Arizona is the absolute flip side of that. They hit it very strongly with their top two picks in Zavin and Rondale. Like those were those were cheer inducing picks. Like, yes, I I love the player. I absolutely see how they fit in the system and what they're gonna do. Like I didn't have any questions about either one of those guys. I was like, yep, and yep, that's a great fit. Then they skip the third round. The next pick is at the end of the fourth, which is significant because the fourth is pretty long. Uh, they grab Marco Wilson. I was not a huge Marco Wilson fan, but you can see that Kime has a thing for athletes in the secondary because Wilson, Gowan, and Wiggins are all crazy athletic or have, like, Gowan's got insane length for a corner. He also happens to be pretty darn fast, but he is ridiculously long as a corner. So they went after traits secondary players right guys that were crazy fast in Wiggins and Wilson and Tay Gowan who uh you know had an opt-out year but had some real flashes but again uh more he had some good reps but he's got to get consistency but they're they're trying to rebuild that secondary and they're doing it with a type they're betting on tools and traits and hoping that you know their coaches can bring these guys along in their defense but again these are all you know, Marco Wilson was fourth, and then they also skipped the fifth, and they either go, you know, Jimmy uh, KJ and Gowan are sixth-round picks, and Wiggins and Manet are seventh-round picks. So, again, these are all sort of lottery ticks. Um, and for for picking down low, sure, they had a type, and they went after it, but they nailed their up-high picks with Collins and Rondell Moore. Um, you know, I like what they did. I don't love what they did, but... Again, Victor from Duke is a guy that I think can develop, and you take a shot, again, at the end of the sixth round. You're talking about 626, right? And could he develop? I think he absolutely can. And at that point, you're taking a swing, right? He had some nice flashes. He's got some good physical traits. He plays hard. Um, So it'll be interesting to see which of the guys after the first two develop, because really you're talking about the end of the fourth round down for all the rest of the picks. But... you could tell they had a board they stuck to it they nailed the top and when we go in and combine that with their free agency hall i mean guys like rodney hudson like rodney hudson's a very good get right it strengthens any class so i like their draft i didn't love it but i love their top two picks and again if you're gonna hit let's hit on those high picks and your lottery tickets down later if they hit 
great. I I think Gowan's the guy I really want to watch because I think out of those lower round picks, he's the guy that I sort of liked the best. And they have a hole there, right? He's got a path to playing yeah. time. So I could see him absolutely making the 53, even though he's got a lot of work to do to do it. Uh, one point before I move on to the UDFAs on the Zabin Collins pick, because a lot of people, when they were on the clock, were like, okay, here comes Caleb Farley. Here comes Greg Newsom. Everybody was thinking corner, 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 corner. And then Zabin got announced. And at first, you and I were skeptical in the pick because they announced him as playing Sam. And I was like, there's no fucking way. Please don't. (laughs) It's like, there's no way he's playing outside linebacker. It's just not going to happen. And then it kind of corrected itself that, I think it was either late later that night or the next day. It's like, no, he's going to play Mike linebacker. And I was like, cool, that's fine. Uh, but it's still a lot of fans were like, why didn't they go corner when you have corner on the board and they had a need at corner? When you look at their defense last year, the Mike linebacker, which is going to be playing opposite of Isaiah Simmons, Isaiah Simmons in nickel is going to be playing what's called the dollar linebacker. So he's the inside linebacker that lines up on the passing strength of the formation, which basically means he's lining up to the tight end side and he's going to be carrying the tight end down the field. That leaves the Mike linebacker one-on-one with the running back nine times out of 10. And when you look at the Cardinals defensive efficiency versus running backs in the past game, it was atrocious, like <laughs> absolutely atrocious. They weren't giving up the most catches, but when they gave up catches, it was like nine yards per reception, which is utterly absurd. Like it is bad. So I, you and I love Jordan Hicks against the run, but he could not cover. He could not close ground in space against scat backs very effectively. He couldn't match and mirror. It was bad. It was just bad. And so Zayvon Collins, I think, play he brings the ability to play the run like Hicks while not getting embarrassed as a pass defender out in space against smaller, quicker running backs. Like, he's not going to give up all that extra yards after the catch. He's not going to give up uh, that much space in when he's, like, matching guys in zone coverage. That was really what killed them. It wasn't just the fact that their corners were bad. It was the fact that their Mike linebacker couldn't cover running backs on third down. So getting a guy like Zayvon Collins filled a bigger hole in their pass defense than I think people realized, let alone being also a good run defender too. So keep that in mind when you're judging the Zayvon Collins pick. I know a lot of people look at taking a linebacker in the top half of the first round as sacrilegious. When you look at what was making that defense hurt last year, it was not sacrilegious. That was that was a phenomenal pick to me. And he's a phenomenal player. We talked about Zayvon Collins. He was one of my 10 gems, my first 10 gem guy I loved as soon as I saw his tape. You had some questions about scheme transition and fit, but this is a guy who has traits that are going to, I mean, if you're going to talk about traits and defensive backs, this is a guy with traits as a football player, linebacker or otherwise. He can cover tight ends. He's huge, right? This is a big dude who is fast, is fluid, has great instincts which gets him there even more quickly um he's just going to take up a lot of space in the middle of the field and usually that's a backhanded compliment that guy's just out there taking up space no i mean he's going to be in the right place and his frame is extremely long he's quick he's powerful just a great versatile player they're going to be able to deploy and when you mix him and simmons like mm-hmm. you're gonna vance joseph's gonna have all the defensive versatility he wants 
he's going to be able to do whatever with that personnel. Because again, that's your base personnel is those two guys playing whatever you're sort of four slash five to your defensive backs aligned, however you want to align them. You've got multiple looks with what those got those two guys specifically at the linebacker position can do they're two of the most gifted guys at that position in the entire nfl now they play on the same team yeah i'm i'm so excited to watch i can't wait to see what he's gonna do (laughs) it's gonna be so good it's gonna be so good uh let's look at their undrafted free agents uh again nothing Really to write home about here, uh, Lorenzo Burns from Arizona, Bruno LaBelle from Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati had a lot of dudes entering the NFL, like, especially from that a defense. loaded program at the collegiate level. Their, their quarterback yeah. is good. Uh, they've got a corner coming out this next year mm-hmm. who's going to be top five in the corner class. Not top five overall, but top five in the corner class. Like, it. Cincinnati, for those of you who are ah, it's Cincinnati. Uh, it's not, not just they, Cincinnati. They, they're loaded with athletes. They played Georgia in a bowl game for a reason. They were a really good team. <laughs> and they hung with them until uh, till their left tackle went down and Aziz Ojolari took over the game. But, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very well-run program. Uh, Cameron Murray from Oklahoma State. Uh, and then Carrie Angeline from NC State. In terms of who's going to make the roster here, because right now, let's see. Their depth chart at tight end looks so it's Max Williams, Daryl Daniels, or is it Darrell Daniels? I'm not actually sure. Ian Bunting, mm-hmm. Ross Trout. Jesus Christ, maybe both right. of them will make it. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if both of them will make it, but there's definitely a place there because Max Williams, as much as I liked him coming out, has turned out to really be more a blocking tight end than anything else. He had some great receiving highlights in college. He's really morphed in, in the pros to have bulked up and be a blocking tight end, and Arnold was the receiving tight end, and Arnold's gone, so you go after some guys with hands that can play that position. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there, or if they just replace it with wide receiver production, largely. I mean, it is air raid, so that wouldn't be unprecedented. That's kind of that's kind of the history of the air raid is we're going to put four receivers on the field and run ten personnel and try to stop us. Like that's that's kind of the history of the offense. So I wouldn't be surprised. Um, looking at free agency here, I'll go through the additions first. So you got AJ Green was a big one. He's coming in on a one year, six million dollar deal. Um, you know, Chris Banjo is back. They re-signed him. They re-signed Sean Williams. They re-signed Charles Washington. Um, you're bringing in uh, James Conner from the Steelers, who's going to be a backup, I'm assuming, to Chase Edmonds. Colt McCoy is going to be a backup to Kyler. They brought him in from the Giants. Matt Prater, who's God knows how many years old now, but he's still got a leg. So they brought him in. Uh, 35. Brian Winters, 35. Yeah, for kicker, that's still in the prime, right? Sure. Uh, Brian Winters from Buffalo. He's going to compete for a starting right guard spot for them. J.J. Watt was the big fish, I think. He's going to immediately slot in at left defensive end and be a wrecking ball. Whether you want to line him up on the same side of Chandler Jones or have him you know, coming off opposite edges, either way, it's going to work. Uh, and also he has familiarity with Vance Joseph, who was a coach under Wade Phillips in Houston, which JJ still to this day says is his favorite defense that he ever played in. And the fact that Vance Joseph runs basically that same defense, I think was, um, 
significant in his decision-making process for where he went as a free agent. A lot of people were like, oh, he's going to go to Green Bay. He's going to go to Pittsburgh. And he ended up going to Arizona. And people said, why? And I said, because he knows the defense. Because <laughs> Vance runs it. So that's a, that was a pretty big factor. Uh, you got Malcolm Butler coming over from Tennessee and then Robert Alford getting re-signed for about a million dollars as well. So uh, overall free agency, their retentions, um, I, I think their retentions outweighed their losses uh, you know, they, they traded for Rodney Hudson, so I guess that's worth mentioning as well. It's not a free agency pickup, but still, it's a trade. Uh, you know, they lost Patrick Peterson. They lost, uh, who else? Let me look at here. They lost Hassan Reddick. That's fine. Kenyon Drake. That's fine. Like, especially, you know, he got like $15 million from the Raiders. They were never going to match that. They lost Mason Cole, but they upgraded again with Hudson. Like, Overall, their losses in free agency were far outweighed by their gains just from Hudson and Watt alone, let alone everybody else, and let alone their retentions from the guys they re-signed. When you throw that on top of the draft, I'm kind of with you with what you said earlier. It's like, if they don't win with this roster, they're just not going to win. <laughs> like, just yeah. straight up. The last two guys you mentioned in Butler and Alford are important because Patrick Peterson, even in his declining state, was still a guy that ate downs for them. I mean, he was on the field all the time. Every situation, Pat Pete was there. So you need to replace that. And again, they took uh, you know a $3 million swing with Malcolm Butler and a less than a million dollar swing with Robert Alford, who I like but has struggled a little bit. Uh, with injuries, and then they're going to match him up with a guy that we both like, Byron Murphy Jr., the corner that they picked up out of Washington. So they have three outside guys, potentially, in Alford, Butler, and Murphy, but they all have their issues. The idea that all of them are going to hit is probably not likely, so you see why in the draft they went after younger guys because they didn't have a lot of stock. They didn't have an air in waiting for Patrick Peterson, right? That guy that they were getting rid of Peterson because he's a bloated contract and Hey, this guy we picked in the second or third round is ready. They didn't really have that guy. They had Murphy, but that was literally it before they added Butler and Alford. So they had a huge hole and they need some of those young guys to work out, but they don't typically need them to work out as starters right away, which is good news, right? If you're picking guys in the fourth round and the sixth round, you're hopefully not counting on that guy to come in and take starter reps right away. Now, over time, neither one of those guys is a long-term answer. Uh, Butler's 31, Alford's 33. You know, they want Murphy to develop. He's the younger guy. He's the guy they're hoping they're sort of placing somebody opposite of. Um, but they need the Tay Gowans and the, the Marco Wilsons of the world to come along. Somebody has to come up as right now only the third or fourth sort of big corner uh, which is fine, great situation to be in. But by next year, they're probably going to need one of those guys to step up to be at least the third, if not the, the the starting corner opposite Murphy. At least that's what they hope, right? That's best laid plans. So those guys are really important additions because they were looking at basically just Murphy as an outside corner. And again, they didn't have any other sort of young heirs in waiting. Um, Watt's a great, great ad. James Conner, not super excited about in this offense. A.J. Green, uh, you know, I would rather almost all A.J. Green's targets go to Rondell Moore at this point. Um, he can be a coach on the field. He can be a coach in the wide receivers room. That's great. But am I hoping for like a ton of production out of a 33-year-old A.J. Green at this point? I'm not really. Um, so interesting addition. I, I for think them. they brought in Green just for the red zone, like just 
we are inside the 25 yard line. Let's throw a jump ball. Like, cause he I would hope that. so. Yeah, I would hope yeah. so. It's, it's no different than the way strangely that the bears use Jimmy Graham or should have used Jimmy Graham, like between the twenties, forget it. Like he's not helping you blocking and he's not running great routes inside the 20 guy came up with a boatload of touchdowns last year because he's got one move and he's still real good at it. So I would <laughs> like to see AJ green used in that way. I think that would probably be his most effective use. They didn't, pay him through the roof i mean six million bucks for a wide receiver these days is not a ton especially one with green's pedigree but um you know those targets between the 20s i want to see rondale with the ball in his hands way more yeah uh than i want to see aj green sucking up targets now will he be productive yeah he is a pro's pro um but uh i want to see those younger guys ascend and i think cliff and kyler do too have we got any official announcement about larry fitzgerald like no, he's, he's still hanging out out there. Do they want him back? I, I don't like, know. They, I think are, is they he just deciding. I I don't think that he has a standing offer. No. I'm just googling it just to see. I don't see any. Yeah, I heard some talk about it about three days ago, and they were just kind of like, "Oh, get him back, right?" Which is kind of the same thing that you hear with KJ and the Seahawks in in a different way. But um, no, I don't. I. I think, I think we might, I think we might have seen the last of that, which is kind of, that's that's yeah. the thing, man. He, Larry it's is sad. an all timer. He's an all timer, yeah. and you know he he still was productive. Like if you give me Larry or AJ Green, I'd probably still take Larry. Right? He was limited, but I I might too, to be honest. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's two guys in the same class, but I, I, Larry. Dude, is... if you give me two, two, if you give me two, two Atwell or Larry Fitzgerald oh. right now, oh, right shots now, shots fired, shots fired, wow, um, yeah. I'm so you know, I'm interested to see what happens with this team overall. Um, it'll be really interesting. I totally agree with you on the Chase Edmonds. I think they totally let Drake go and said that's fine. We have what we want, really. Chase Edmonds was sort of taking carries on the backside in a sneaky way we both like you know benjamin uh you know i don't think he's gonna get as many chances will he get some i hope so because we both thought he was a very exciting player when he came out um it'll be really interesting to see how they work the offense and whether they can string together wins that's what it's about for this team this year is you got a lot of talent you got some high profile additions hudson jj watt like can you turn that into wins or is it just the kind of classic from 10 years ago arizona formula of bring aging stars to the desert sell some tickets and you know we're not really going to challenge anybody um can't be that this year for for arizona going forward that's that's not a plan for sustained success in the nfl so it'd be really fascinating if they hit on all cylinders they got a lot of good stuff and if they're racked by injuries again they're going to struggle if kyler goes down they're going to struggle because if Kyler goes down, that's the same. That's not an indictment of Steve Keim or Cliff Kingsbury or anybody else. Like most starting quarterbacks go down in the NFL. Your team's going to struggle, but literally you go from Kyler to Colt. Right. Yeah. I like Colt, but Colt has struggled with his own injuries. Every time he's really had a a primetime opportunity, he's gotten hurt. And that's a bummer because I actually liked his game coming out of Texas. But if you think you're going to win anywhere near as many games with Colt as opposed to Kyler, you're kidding yourself because he just doesn't bring the same dimensions. So they got to keep guys healthy. And bottom line, man, they got to win games. It's a tough division. Um, Last segment I want to get into with our title sponsor 
Underdog Fantasy is NFC West players that you would draft in a best ball format for fantasy football or even maybe even just for fantasy football in general. But we're going to mostly focus on best ball here because Underdog is putting on a $3.5 million best ball fantasy tournament. If you use the link in the description, use promo code BRETT, that'll get you $25 to use on the platform, which conveniently is the same uh, as the entry fee into that tournament is a million dollars to first prize. So we're going to talk about some players from the NFC West that we would draft on our best ball teams if and when we are drafting to go for this million dollar prize, which EJ and I are both eligible for. So we're giving you legit advice here because we're going to be drafting these guys too, especially when we're doing all of our streams drafting with you guys. Pay attention to our Twitters for that, by the way. Uh, So I I have three players and you have three players, all from the NFC West. Uh, I'll start it off here with Trey Sermon, who is a personal favorite of mine. And a big reason why is because he's going to be used in basically the exact same way that he was used at Ohio State last year, which is we are running outside zone. You are a slasher with good vision and good feet, and you're good at powering through contact. Does he have the most juice in terms of breakaway speed? Absolutely not, but he's got such good vision. He's a great decision maker. He catches the ball well. He's just solid, solid, solid. And I think he went in the third round because Kyle Shanahan looked at how Ohio State used him with all that outside zone stuff and was like, I'm seeing him do the same shit I would see him do with my team. And so it's an easy projection. He knows the skill set is there. He knows he doesn't really have to teach him anything. I think it's a very easily translatable rookie running back in a run-centric system that, again, I alluded to this earlier, it's a crowded backfield, but if you're going to bet on one of these guys to emerge in a best ball format where you don't really have to invest a high draft pick in him, and he might end up getting 15 carries and like two touchdowns because that's just what that offense does for running backs, like... I know a lot of people are going to draft Jeff Wilson. I know a lot of people are going to draft Mostert, but Trey Sermon's going to go after both of those guys and potentially will equal or better their total touches. Like Kyle Shanahan drafted this dude for a reason. He already knows he works in the system. He's already good at what this offense does. And he's going to be so much cheaper than all of the established running backs on this offense. Like, in terms of value for a potential best ball monster, Trey Sermon, to me, is just perfect. You are a braver man than I with that backfield. I love Trey Sermon, and I don't care who knows it. No, that's fine. (laughs) I don't mind from a best ball format. Your point about value is is really valid, right? He's going to be available late because it is a dart throw of a backfield. And if you were picking in traditional fantasy, this would be your last pick, your second to last pick, somebody you have down the list, and maybe you hope that... You know, somebody above him gets injured for your fantasy purposes and you can slot him in for a couple weeks at the end of the season and have kind of a coup moment where you knock some people off because now you've got a starting running back out of it. Um, In best ball, you're still going to pick him much later than those other guys. And, you know, I could see him getting some goal line type touches as well because he's a little bigger than most of the other backs in San Francisco. So the value thing is valid. You're going to be able to get him way late and 
you know, in a best ball format, it's more attractive. In a traditional fantasy format, oh man, take your life in your hands picking any San Francisco running back because if it's not your guy, you're getting nothing. Uh, in best ball format, <laughs> you might pick up some touchdowns late in the year, um, especially if he gets comfortable. Shanahan gets comfortable with him. He starts banging in some, you know, inside the five yard line touches, uh, being a little bit of a touchdown thief. Yeah, I could see it. Who is your. Uh first player on the list because again this can be doesn't have to be rookies doesn't have to be free, like it can be anybody in the nfc west who is your first guy from this division that yeah. you want in fantasy i'm going alpha up high i'm going dk metcalf and you know you're not gonna get a value <laughs> on dk metcalf he's no, gonna be no you're not right up there and rightfully so 83 catches last year 1300 yards 10 tds solid production in every category you know, traditional fantasy, best ball, doesn't matter. This is one of those guys you're going to pay a premium for, and it's going to be worth it. He's got a clear relationship. Russell stays. Looks like the offensive line's a little bit better, but they didn't bring any any receiving talent in that's really going to thieve a lot of touchdowns from DK's role, right? We talked about Dwayne Askridge at the top of the podcast playing a very different role, and yeah, hopefully he does get some long touchdowns for the Hawks, but that's not going to affect DK's touches Crazy thing about Metcalf is even with 83 touches, that's a bunch, 15.7 yards per catch. Over 80 catches, and every one of them was a first down and a half plus. That's insane. So, again, this is no sneaker. This is not anything you're going to pull over anybody's eyes in your league. You're going to have to pay one of your premium picks to get this guy. But... All signs point towards him continuing to produce because he's a physical marvel. Seattle's figured out how to use him, and he's got a connection with his quarterback, which is always going to pay off. So he's not going to be somebody that you're going to be stashing or only getting production from in a few weeks. He's going to be a guy that's driving your team along all season long. And I know people are wondering, okay, where does he fit into Waldron's offense? And you know what you know what is a potentially more run centric system mean for DK? Again, we're talking about an X receiver in a heavily Shanahan-inspired West Coast offense, which is a system that traditionally has prioritized the X receiver like crazy. Julio Jones played that spot and put up career highs. Andre Johnson played that spot and put up career highs. Pierre Garçon played that spot and put up career highs. Robert Woods played that spot and put up career highs. The X receiver in this offense feasts every time every time it's one of the most consistent things in sports you give a shanahan style west coast offense you bet on the x receiver don't care if it's justin jefferson don't care if it's dk metcalf anybody that plays that spot they're gonna get the ball because that's just how the offense is designed they funnel the ball to the x so that was a good choice by you uh speaking of X receivers in this offense. I went with Brandon Ayuk, another 49er. You know, uh, it, there's been some debate. Okay, who are, who are you? Who do you want to prioritize among the young 49ers receivers? Do you want Debo? Um, you know, does the addition of Mo Sanu, you know, throw a wrench into things? Like, what about Jalen Hurd potentially being like a weird big slot H back type kind of guy for them? Like, what is Austin Watkins coming in mean? Like, for me, None of that shit matters. Brandon Ayuk is the guy. Like, Debo is great. He doesn't play the same way as Brandon Ayuk, and they drafted Brandon Ayuk 
in the first round specifically to play this role. He got off press really well at ASU. He's a very good vertical threat, very underrated route runner. Remember, like this is the same guy that was like working with Torrey Holt in the offseason before he even got in the NFL. Like the dude can run routes. And unfortunately, he started off his rookie year, uh, you know, coming off injury. So it took him a little while to get into the swing of things. And he was still, once he finally got in there, he was a very, very productive player despite going into a, an offense that is traditionally hard for rookies to acclimate to at the receiver position because it's very complicated and also being injured and having a quarterback that was injured and everything like that. Like he, he did not have a situation that was conducive to being a productive rookie and he was still a productive rookie. He's a very special kind of guy. And again, playing X receiver in an offense that funnels the ball to the X receiver. Like I am all in on Brandon Ayuk. I want him really bad. And the only thing that would make me lay off is if they trade for Julio, which I don't think is going to happen because they don't have as much draft capital as they used to. But that is literally the only thing that will make me pause a little bit on Brandon Ayuk because Julio would be the X by default. But if they don't trade for Julio, for the love of God, please draft Brandon Ayuk. I don't care what format it is. Just draft Brandon Ayuk. Yeah, I agree that he didn't have an ideal situation at all. Still showed that he adapted very quickly, made plays, right? And made plays down the field. And that's kind of the difference with Debo. Debo's the yak guy. Debo's the guy that's going to pick up some extra yards rushing. It's still probably not worth, again, a true functioning X in that system. And especially a guy that's as competitive as Ayuk. Yes, he has the route running skills, but he gets the ball in his hands. He does not want to go down. So it's kind of like the difference with DK, right? DK's targets are going to be much deeper, in general, than Eskridge or Lockett, right? You're going to be averaging 10, 15 yard average depth of target. Um, so Ayuk's going to be that guy in San Francisco, and Debo's going to get the underneath stuff. And yeah, he's going to break some of them. You're going to get a whole handful of yards from him. He's gonna he's going to go 25 yards on the on the tap pass or the jet sweep, whatever. And you know that's going to happen. But you sort of amalgamate all those stuff in smaller chunks and then take those regular, consistent, deeper chunks to Ayuk. And if that's going to look like a very solid pick by the end of the season, as long as they get some decent quarterbacking, you know, Jimmy G predictably probably starts the season and then Trey Lance comes in at some point, takes the reins. And as long as he establishes a relationship with Ayuk, which he's probably going to have to, because the offense is going to force him to, um, it, that's, that's looking good. Now, your, uh, I, I just glanced at your notes right now. Your second one is very fascinating because it's one that I heavily considered. Mm -hmm. And this is a name that has consistently flown under the radar for maybe the entirety of his career. But he's been a bootleg favorite since, I think, literally the first episode that we've done. Please wax poetic as much as humanly possible about the great Robert Woods. Yes, about even more. Can we say more about Robert Woods? We got this. We brought this guy up every week last year. It seemed like it was like, and we'd be writing our notes. It was like, do we talk about Robert Woods? He made more plays. Like he had another big week. We gotta like he made a huge play to to give his team the lead with like you know, ten minutes left in the fourth quarter. We gotta talk about him. And every week it was like that because he was making plays. This is a guy that didn't have the highest pedigree. He was certainly not the, you know, top alpha kind of a pick. But 
he had a great relationship with Goff, and I can't imagine that Matt Stafford is not going to love Robert Woods because Robert Woods, we said this over and over again, is a great football player. He happens to play wide receiver, but every week he makes plays outside of what you would typically call wide receiver duties. He's a great blocker. He ends up tacking on rushing yards you mentioned earlier. He ended up with uh, rushing touchdowns last year. He had two of them, added 155 yards rushing, which you might say, oh, that's 155 yards rushing. He was also a leading wide receiver in that offense, right? 90 catches, so seven more than DK. 936 yards, so again, a shorter depth of target than a guy like DK, but six TDs out of that, Um, 10.4 per touch. Add in the rushing yards and two more touchdowns. You're talking about eight total touchdowns, you know, thousand yards, well over a thousand yards rushing and receiving combined, depending on how you're getting credit in your league. Robert Woods is a guy that's going to continue to produce and he should hit. I would imagine his share of targets will increase to, to Atwell be damned, right? Because Josh Reynolds, (laughs) Josh Reynolds, was taking oh some of those targets. Josh Reynolds was one of those guys. Is the fourth receiver. He was reliable, but he would flash in kind of every three or four weeks. You'd have that Josh Reynolds moment. You'd remember and go, oh man, I really liked him coming out of Texas A&M. Like, but he only totaled up, you know, a few hundred yards. I would bet that more of those yards end up going to Robert Woods and that he cracks a thousand yards straight up receiving this year. Um, touchdowns are always fickle, but six, Again, Goff was uh, famous, is famous, for spreading the ball around in that offense. He will put it wherever anybody's open. Stafford has tended to lock in on receivers a little bit more. He hasn't had the depth of talent that's available to him on the Rams. Typically with the Lions, he's had one or two good targets, and he has he has pounded it, right? When Kenny Galladay was in for the Lions, Kenny Galladay got the ball from Matt Stafford. Mm-hmm. And I could see you know Woods and Galladay, different players, but I could see Robert Woods establishing himself and, and getting that rapport. It, it's just, it's impossible for me to think that Matt Stafford is not going to like Robert Woods as a football player. And that means touches and that means yards. And eventually, hopefully that means touchdowns. Uh, and again, you know, touchdowns are like the most variable stat in football. Like you can't really can't, like what really matters is how often are they scheming up opportunities in the red zone? Like that's, there's no way to track that right now without charting it literally yourself. Like how many plays are they calling in the red zone where he's a primary? Uh, that's tough to know, but I, I think if you give him the opportunity, if you give him the one-on-ones in the red zone, he can execute, he can get open, and Matt's going to get him the ball, in my opinion, with more frequency than Jared Goff would. So that's a good pick for me. If you, and then, if you play me last year's tape and you don't tell me how many touchdowns he had, like if you sort of – just play me a, mm-hmm. a smattering of last year's tape from every week, not including the touchdowns, so you couldn't count them up. And then you have me guess based on the number of times he got the ball and and just the frequency that he was in the right place and made a good play after the catch. And you asked me to guess the number of touchdowns he had, it would not be six. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's like when, when, uh, when Julio had that one year where he had like a billion catches and like three touchdowns. We're like, how is that possible? It's like shit happens, you know, like 
Or when Megatron, you know, had like 2,000 yards receiving, but he got tackled inside the five like eight times. Like, it just, it happens. It happens. Yeah, Touchdowns it's a coin flip for sure. But Woods is a good football player, and and he's going to be a focus of that offense. He's going to continue to be. And I think Stafford, like you, is going to maximize more of that even than Jared Goff did. And Jared Goff maximized a lot of it. Now, my third pick um, – you know, I considered Kyler Murray here, but I think I am going to stick with the Rams and say Matt Stafford solely from a value standpoint because his ADP is the 14th quarterback off the board, Oof. which a standard league is 12 people. So <laughs> is Matt Stafford a backup quarterback in fantasy? Not for me. Not with that I receiving core. I don't think he will be. Yeah. I, I can't. Like, he's going behind... Tannehill, which Tannehill lost, you know, multiple receivers. Uh, he's behind Deshaun, who we don't even know if Deshaun's going to play. Like right. he's behind uh, Aaron Rodgers, which we don't even know what team Aaron's going to be on. Like, I, I don't know. If I had to draft like right now for this best ball tournament, I would take Stafford over and again this is sacrilegious i would take stafford over rogers and deshaun because at least we know where he's gonna be and that he's gonna play week one like him going at qb 14 means that you're gonna get him super late and know for a fact where he's gonna be who his weapons are who his coordinator is you know what camp is he gonna be in that security again when i'm putting money down to try to win a million dollars i want the security of knowing that information about my starting quarterback and uh you know there are you know typical standard leagues they're going to draft in like early august if you want to wait out the roger situation the deshaun situation fine but in terms of people that are making entries into this contest over summer you're getting a guy like stafford in a potentially top seven or eight offense who's going to get a boatload of red zone opportunities with one of the best offensive minds in football, a great complement of weapons, a potentially great defense, and just a damn good team around him, a good supporting structure around him. I don't know. QB 14 just doesn't make sense to me. I think he's a fantastic value. I think you're going to get him late and just laugh your way to the bank. Yeah, I love the idea of late, right? I wouldn't have guessed his ADP was below 12. Um, but... There you go. Uh, for value, again, as long as he stays healthy, that's the thing, right? He has struggled with some injuries, but if he stays healthy, he's got weapons. He's got a great coach, <laughs> certainly much better than what he's been working with in Detroit uh, in terms of scheming up opportunities. Uh, his running back situation is better, which is always helpful to a quarterback. Um, if he stays healthy, 14 is absurd. Uh, I mean, even so, Jalen Hurts is Jalen Hurts is QB 11 and Matt Stafford's QB 14. Can you believe that? You know, shit? Well, I can in Hurts's <laughs> case being closer, right? Because he's going to add some running yards. Uh, but Stafford's largely not like I don't want Matt Stafford trying to add running yards. He's probably not going to get any touchdowns via quarterback sneak when he's got Cam Akers and Darrell Henderson behind him. Um, and that's fine. He's going to throw for a ton of yards. He threw for a ton of yards. He's thrown for a ton of yards every year. Like Stafford is underappreciated because he's played in situations in Detroit that largely haven't been great. He He's not had, 
he's either not had the protection, not had the weapons, or not had the coaching, and it's sort of gone on throughout his career. But as a guy that's watched him as a division rival year after year, like that guy's crazy talented. Like, and I'm that's why I want him to stay healthy. I really want him to see what he can do with an offensive minded coach and and a good cast of weapons around him. Speaking of those weapons, I'm going to pick one of them for my third pick. I debated between Cam Akers, who we both like a lot, and Darrell Henderson, who I loved the year he came out. I was absolutely convinced the Bears <laughs> wanted him because I really thought they wanted explosive plays. And turns out, no, nope, they wanted more Kareem Huntish. They took David Montgomery to be their uh, sort of all-arounder and, and tough guy uh, between the tackles that could break off tougher runs. Uh, Darrell Henderson it can do that, but he has the explosive element. He can break longer runs. Um, only 138 touches last year, 624 yards off that. Five TDs, so only one TD less than Woods in 138 rushes. 4.5 yards per rush, good solid rush average. Adds a little bit of receiving. Uh, definitely came on um, in his second year as a receiver. Had almost no catches his first year. Uh, second year, 15 catches for 159, one TD. That's almost 10 yards a catch. Um, so he's going to add a little bit. He's not Alvin Kamara by any stretch. He's not going to be that kind of value. But he's also going to be available later because he's going to be splitting time in the backfield with Cam Akers. And again, in a best ball format, that's okay. You're picking up you know, five touchdowns, uh, sorry, six touchdowns total, one receiving, five rushing. Um, and he's got the ability to explode on any play. Again, as Stafford starts to stretch the field, Goff was not tremendous down the field. Stafford is very good down the field. Defenses are going to have to respect that. They're going to have to back off a little bit more. And you're going to see running backs with just a half yard more space. And if you give a guy like Darrell Henderson half yard more space, that could mean 20 more yards on that run. He's that kind of explosive back. So um, nobody you're going to grab up high in terms of overall production. He's not going to be, you know, RB2, 3, 4, or 5. I don't know. what's his, You could look up his ADP because you've got it up. But you're going to get him later. He's going to grab rushing and some receiving yards but he's got the chance for explosive plays and in best ball it's all going to count i'm looking it up right now he is rb 64 that is late yeah late you're gonna be able to grab him last as almost a throwaway pick and with that kind of production it's not gonna be a throwaway pick i imagine again as long as he stays healthy that his production is going to be greater than that this year because they've ran him as the primary cam Akers really came in after he got dinged up and Akers became the primary we got to see that he's very good too but henderson was the guy at the beginning of the season that they gave the primary a1 touches to so i imagine they're gonna start off again this year that way and uh he could he could be off the races he could have a thousand yard season in two of the first five weeks before Akers came on he had 18 points or more in two of those weeks. He looked like he was going to set the world on fire as a sophomore in the NFL um, and didn't didn't turn out that, you know, he didn't end up with enough touches to do that because of some injuries. But uh, honestly, if but, he stays but here's healthy, the thing, like yeah. in, in best ball, though, you would get those points. Totally you know, agree. it's like it doesn't matter who you took. You would get those points. And if let's just say you take him at RB 64 and he's on your bench as a flyer, all it takes is 
you know, Akers fumbling and getting benched and or, you know, them having a game out of hand and they're just grinding away with Henderson as the number two or God forbid Akers gets hurt and then Henderson's the number one. All of a sudden you got a dude who's putting up 18 plus points every single week. Well, like he was the number. I'm not so sure he's number two. That's the thing is Akers had Akers finished really strong, but Akers started as the two. And while Henderson was healthy, yeah. he was the one. So I'm not so sure that they won't say, hey, this is even and go for the explosive element because Henderson has more of that. Akers is a tremendously good back. Like, look, It's an embarrassment of riches to have that backfield, right? Because it doesn't matter who you start. They're both productive. But I'm not so sure that Henderson won't get the A1 touches if he's back healthy. The good news is that if even if he doesn't get the the crazy amount of touches, if he just breaks off a few runs... You're going to get credit for it. That's the beauty of best ball. So sure. overall, uh, it's a. these are the kinds of guys that thrive in that format because you don't need to guess. You just get the points. And ideally, those points will win you a million dollars. And then uh, you that can... That would be uh, ideal. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you can buy me and EJ Super Bowl tickets and we'll all go watch the game together and talk about how Daryl Henderson is the greatest football player ever to grace the football field. You know, if you win a million dollars, and let's just say the Rams don't make the Super Bowl, because they probably won't. Teams in their home stadium don't typically make the Super Bowl. Maybe we'll get Darrell Henderson to sit in a suite with us and watch the Super Bowl if we have a million dollars. That'd be awesome. I mean, yeah, we could just throw 20 grand at him and be like, hey, uh, we're going to have a bunch of bootleggers come watch the Super Bowl with us in a box. A million dollars to buy a Super Bowl box, right? You think? Well, okay, let's you know, let's make a pact right now. If one of us wins it, we'll get a box at the Super Bowl, and and have bootleggers come watch the the, the Super Bowl in a box with us. Because I'm assuming that money would buy it for us, right? It seems like it, but then again, not being never having gone to a Super Bowl, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> well. Super Bowl is in my neck of the woods this year, so maybe we'll change that. I maybe realize we'll, we, maybe we have we'll a good a chance of, of reversing that trend this year, which I'm excited about. But uh, what do you say we get out of here? Because we're going to have to do seven more of these, uh, which is good times. Um, what do you got coming up besides all this fun stuff, talking about every single player in the NFL? <laughs> well, I'm still working on that um, history of the spread offense, which has morphed again, EJ. It has it has grown more appendages and become a monster. That thing is and... the hydra of football content. <laughs> Cut off one it's... head, two grow back. Yeah. yeah, now I'm like I'm looking at like how Sid Gilman like influenced Norm Chow, who influenced Hal Mummy, who created the air raid with Mike Leach, and oh by the way, Andy Reid was his GA with Mike Leach at BYU. By the way, I'm just and... here. I'm just here for the Mouse Davis content, right? I'm just uh, yeah, and Mouse the... Davis. I'm, I'm uh, just here know. for the Mouse Davis mentions architect of the modern run and shoot which heavily influenced the air raid and also influenced um i mean basically every single passing game when you look at it these days like a lot of the run and shoot concepts are like oh yeah we have six different options on this route depending on coverage and it's like well everybody does that and it's like well yeah everybody does that because that's what the run and shoot did and it worked Um, now you go back to (laughs) you go back to the smurfs and war moon and houston and man God, that offense was fun. And it was so different at that point. Now, it would hardly stand out. In fact, it wouldn't. 
stand no for the most part. yeah because uh i mean everybody runs run and shoot concepts everybody runs air raid concepts now like because of these guys because of what mouse did at portland state totally agree changed football and it influenced so much of 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 what modern football is not to get too much in a tangent but doing all this research has made me realize so many mistakes that I've made in draft evaluation, particularly at the quarterback position, because I was looking back, and so I found uh, I found a note, and this was double confirmed by Tim Layden and Chris Brown of SmartFootball.com. If you ever read his work, so you know who taught Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen, who worked together and went together to Bowling Green. Uh, you know who taught them the single back spread? Yeah, I cheated. I saw that. I saw the tweet, so tell everybody. <laughs> so it was Scott Linehan. Scott Linehan, who was the OC at Louisville at the time, who learned it because he was the quarterback at Idaho under Dennis Erickson, who learned it from Jack Elway, who learned it from Jack Niemeyer, who came up with the damn thing. So Scott Linehan was heavily influenced by Derek, uh, Dennis Erickson of University of Miami fame, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he taught it to Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen. All these years later, Dan Mullen, you know, goes with Urban to Utah and Florida, eventually becomes the head coach at Mississippi State when Dak Prescott was there, was running a variation of that offense that Scott Linehan taught him. Then Dak Prescott goes to the Cowboys with Scott Linehan at offensive coordinator. And I'm thinking back, it's like, wow, I'm a fucking idiot that I never put any of this together. Like, of course Dak was going to be successful as a rookie. He knew the verbiage. He knew the concepts. Like, of course he was going to walk into training camp and when Tony goes down in the preseason, immediately pick up the offense. He already knew it. He ran it at Mississippi State, or at least a version of it. Of course he was going to be successful. And so this video is about how, like, all of these different concepts from the spread and you know, the, the run and I mean, really it's the run and shoot that then influenced the one back spread and influenced the air raid and influenced everything that the new, new Hampshire mafia did. And all this stuff, every single NFL team runs it now, which is why all these young quarterbacks are all of a sudden being a lot more successful because it's the same shit everywhere. And it works. It's yep. going to be great. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't wait for the ten episode, um, you know, leather bound <laughs> volume to come out next year as a commemorative box set. Um, that's going to be my favorite, uh, be my favorite coffee table gift for Christmas next year. <laughs> no, I'm excited. It's oh, by the awesome. way, hold on, hold on. Uh oh, leather bound. This this oh. book has been instrumental in my research. It's called Football Revolution, The Rise of the Spread Offense and How It Transformed College Football. Um, it was written by Bart Wright, and it has he interviewed every coach you can ever think of for this book to get information, like accurate information about who knew what and when, who was inspired by who. Uh, it goes back to the 1920s in terms of like where everything started, and... Um, this was a phenomenal resource, among others, that I've been using and, and you know, tapping into my own network of people and asking them questions. And um, But this, this book is really phenomenal. If you're interested in the history of football, I cannot recommend it enough. Football Revolution, the rise of the spread offense and how it transformed college football uh, and really just transformed football in general 
in my opinion. It's a fantastic book. Super cool. And uh, I bought my plane tickets to come down for opening weekend, so I'm excited about that. We're going to watch Bears-Rams uh, in your neck of the woods again. So we'll be we'll be coming up with something to do with fans over that weekend. We're not exactly sure what, but we're working on it. So follow us on Twitter if you're not doing that already. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to sign off and get ready for another one of these things. We'll be doing the AFC West next week, and then we'll be moving on to the South and the North, and then finally the East, doing NFC teams first, AFC teams next in each of those areas. So you can kind of plot it out on your calendar as to when your division's going to going to land on our calendar um really enjoy it but give us great feedback in the comments uh because we do these one a week we don't do them all in one week uh we can make changes as we go so if there's more or less you want to hear about let us know we're happy to do that um absolutely sign up for underdog because we are going to be holding giveaways contests where we draft with you guys for uh mini contests as well as the big million dollar prize well 3.5 million dollar prize but million dollar first prize uh best ball tournament over the summer uh we're going to be running those as some of our friday live streams so we're going to have all kinds of fun but get signed up so that you're ready um i've got to do the same thing make my profile so we can start doing those drafts here pretty quickly but uh, we'll be back next week with the afc west and until then you're probably going to be watching this video because it's like two and a half hours long so (laughs) yeah so we appreciate everybody that's been so supportive um you, you guys have been very patient in waiting for this series to drop, so we're excited to finally have the first edition of it drop today. we got seven more to go. Uh, again, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with the AFC West uh, and probably plenty of Mia Culpas for Chargers fans for all the, the negative predictions we had for you guys. We were dead wrong. We really like what you guys are doing now. Uh, very optimistic about your future, but we'll save that for next week. So until then, stay happy, stay healthy. We'll see you guys next week. See ya.